This is episode number 228. What is the connection between gratitude and resilience with Casey Berman and Scott Mason? Welcome. My name is Oleg Lokid, and this is the Overcoming Outs podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of individuals who have overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your fullest potential. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to make a few quick announcements. First one being is if you have enjoyed any of the previous episodes or if this is your first time tuning in, Consider supporting our cause by making a donation through our website at overcomingodds.today so we can continue creating and sharing these courageous and inspiring conversations. The second announcement that I wanted to make is an invitation to all of our listeners to our upcoming experience called Survive to Thrive Attitude of Gratitude. This is a weekly conversation that is broadcasted live through Facebook and LinkedIn where we explored the topics around the concepts of the connection between gratitude and grief, gratitude and resilience, gratitude and relationships in our lives, and many other topics. If you'd like to know more details about any of these upcoming experiences, please visit our website at overcomingodds.today where you'll be able to find the time and place that each and every single one of these takes place. Last but not least, If you've enjoyed any of the previous episodes, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes, Facebook, or Google so more people can hear these inspiring and courageous conversations. Now, let's get back to the show. All right, there they are. (laughs) One time they'll see. (laughs) Well, first of all, thank you, the two of you, for being a part of this. you know, I know that we had a great conversation leading up to the event, and I wanted to kind of continue this on with these topics of what does it mean, like the one that you're able to see above, destiny, and then what is the relationship between destiny and gratitude, resilience and gratitude, and all these other topics. But I figured the best way that we can even start off, first of all, is to welcome Melody, who joined us here all the way from Massachusetts. <laughs> I think she's probably one of the only people that has joined us every single time. And I just find that that's awesome that she's able to do it. Um, I figured that the best way that maybe we can start off this particular conversation is by choosing to explore the question above us. And that is this concept of destiny. And I know that this is a question that you, Scott Mason, had asked the three of us. So I'm going, I can't think of better way other than for you to kick it off. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) I'm going to start off with a story today. So as both of you know, and Melody, you may or may not know this, and anyone else who's watching may or may not know this. I was born in England. I was born to a white woman who was in graduate school and had an affair with a man who was in law school and they, he was black and they put me up for adoption. And I was adopted by two Americans from the Midwest who were in the service there. 
And those Americans brought me to Kansas where I grew up. They were African-American and all of the people in their families were African-American and they were a minority in an overwhelmingly white milieu. And I was someone who looking like I do was a minority within my own family that was a minority within a larger, like I said, larger social and racial demographic. Mm -hmm. It was not an area of the country that was particularly known for the hyper ambitiousness of the population. It was rural. The house that my parents ultimately ended up buying had a big field behind it. I remember looking at horses um, stomping on the grass back there, and there was a creek. And my sister would go there sometime, with our, and I would go out there with our babysitter, and I'd find little turtles, and I'd take them home. And those would be my pets for the day. They always ran away, though. <laughs> we play with crawdad. And then I don't blame them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they wanted their liberation. They wanted to be. They wanted a destiny, and it wasn't (laughs) as my pet. (laughs) And one of the things that I would do there, I remember this so well. I wasn't very athletic, but I could run, and I could run fast. And there were wheat fields and corn fields nearby, and I'd go running for hours and hours in them. And then at night, I remember I'd go out to my backyard. We could see the stars so clearly and I'd look at them. I'd imagine this city somewhere up there in the clouds at night. And I'd dream about how I could be there. But it never occurred to me that something like that could really happen because people in the area that I grew up in were not expected to have anything other than a future that was utterly mundane. And that takes us to the question that you raised in the write-up before this event, Oleg. I'll never forget when it happened. My church, or my mother's church, had a Halloween party in its basement, and they made it all dark. And there was one of the elder ladies of the church who dressed up as a fortune teller. She had on scarves and makeup, and I didn't even recognize her, and beads, lots of beads, and she had cards. And I went over to her, and she told me to stick out my hand, and I did. And she said to me, Scott, you have greatness in your future. I look at your hand, and I see a destiny that is unlike anyone's here. She may have just said those words. But in that moment, for the first time in my life, I thought that I might have a future that was other than just working in a factory or or being a manager of the local shoe store, all of which are perfectly fine destinies. But I had the idea put in my head that perhaps there was a different future for me. And that idea resonated with me. Now, not every idea that I heard did. People would tell me all sorts of things about myself. Scott, you'll grow up and be a great mathematician one day. Well, I knew that that was just somebody talking. But the things she said about me struck me inside. I've always wondered, looking back on it, 
if that moment she was just pretending to be a fortune teller, telling me something nice based on what she knew of me observing me in church. But sometimes I wonder if she was tapping into something a little bit deeper. I can tell you this, that what she said tapped into something deeper inside of me, and it resonated more so than a zillion other words I've heard. The idea that I might be part of some providential flow that would lead to a place that was unique for me was born that day, and it's never left me. Oh, actually, that's a lie. There was a long time when it did leave me, and those were times in which I walked through some dark valleys. But when what had been in the back of my mind reemerged, rays of sunshine would appear in the shadow, and it's always carried me through. So I can relate to parts of what you just um, shared, Scott. I think for me, <clears throat> it's interesting that you bring up this whole concept of not having a sense for a future. And then from there, having such person tell you like you are destined for greatness. You know, you don't know what that greatness looks like or anything. I was having a conversation like this recently on um, Eric Clark's, or maybe it was uh, Jurgen's podcast. And we were talking, and they, one of them asked me the question of at what point in your past, especially in my childhood, did you start thinking that there was a future beyond the circumstances? And I think the thing that stood out to me the most was the adoption was that opportunity. Because before that, it was just as you described. It was my my highest aspirations were either working at a grocery store. Uh, I don't even think going to a college was really an aspiration because being in an orphanage, at least at the time that I was in it, that was a, that was a long shot. That was a long shot to get any form of um, formal education beyond the traditional schooling that we were all exposed to. But that brings up a really good question. And I know, Casey, you probably have had a different experience compared to, to the two of us. And that is, at what point did you believe or did you start to believe that there was a concept of future and that, you know, whatever it is that you were imagining was possible? Yeah. I know for me, it wasn't until I was probably 11, 12 years old. And I, I will also share this. One of my, one of the first quote unquote figures that gave me an opportunity to understand that there was a future beyond my imagination was the name Michael Jordan. True story. Mm -hmm. When I was introduced to the fam to my family now that lives in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and then with that it followed the dreamland, Michael Jordan, and everything that you think of when it comes to the United States, that was probably one of the first moments that I actually started to realize that, wow, there is a whole other world beyond working at a grocery store or going to the army or some of these other options that were available to us. So if anything, I think down the road, it would be great to have a conversation with Michael Jordan and share that with him. <laughs> you know, but I'm wondering, so like, Casey, did you have a different experience? So I think I just had a different experience in in the details. So the question is, do you believe that you have a particular destiny? Mm -hmm. I don't, I try not to now. 
at age 47 in the year 2021. I try not to now. Uh, I did for most of my life. And I grew up here in San Francisco, city kid. I grew up with phenomenally loving parents and a loving sister who still are just great family. And there was always a path for me. And as you know, I run Leave Law Behind where I help unhappy attorneys to leave the law and career transition and into a new, into something else. And there, for me, and I don't want to sound like the diva or ungrateful or anything along those lines, but I was on the path to become a lawyer, become a business person, become whatever. That's what my dad was. And that's just the people that I was around. And that's just what you did. Um, going to the army or doing something that didn't require college or didn't require a higher degree was not the path that I was on. And I don't, I'm not, I'm, I'm not shameful of it. I don't feel guilty of it. I, I feel grateful for it. That's just, that's just what I grew up in. And, and, you know, hearing your story, Scott, and I know Oleg, you know, being able, I think destiny provided this phenomenal opportunity for you, like you said, to kind of see beyond that. And again, nothing wrong with working in retail, nothing wrong with going in the army if it, if it aligns with you, mm -hmm. but if it doesn't align with you, if you want to do something else, not necessarily more, but you want to do something else, if it doesn't align with you, you're going to relegate yourself to unhappiness if you're doing something, whatever it is. If you're doing law and it doesn't fit for you, you're going to be unhappy. If you're doing medicine, if you're doing retail, whatever it is. And so there are plenty of people that just running a shoe shop, um, being in retail, they get inventory. They love it. They love connecting with the people, all the power to them. Um, it wasn't for me. And I also like to be independent. I don't want to go to a store. I just don't like to commute all that. All right. But for me, there was a destiny written for me, whether it mm -hmm. came from society or my parents. And that was to, you know, be a professional, go to college. Like we've joked around, have 2.2 or 1.8 kids and a white picket fence and live in San Francisco or get a house and all this. And, you know, and so I did that. And, um, I've had some great times and I've had some, some times that, um, where I said, this just isn't fitting and I've, I've done different things career, but the reason I think the issue I have with destiny is that it creates your identity. Now, what's so wrong with creating your identity for me, creating, I'm trying to be identity less. Now it doesn't mean I go around just touchy feely or say I'm the person formerly known as, or I'm an empty vessel or anything like that. But what I've realized is I have a story I keep telling myself and I keep telling other people and there's a destiny. I need to make an X amount of dollars. I need to be this. I need to be that, that I'm, and, and, you know, destiny is this, what happens in your life, some of it out in your control, some of it out of your control, particularly what happens in the future to you. And for me, that just seemed like a hamster wheel and destiny morphed to me to become a story that i kept having to live up to and some of that story i didn't like um why do i have to go to an office all the time why do i have to climb the corporate ladder or why do i every, everyone has their their points that they don't want so mm -hmm. for me i think i'm trying to shed <clears throat> this idea of destiny for me it means being more in the moment gratitude helps a lot with that i heard a quote you know that said that gratitude is a blessing magnet um, gratitude brings us everything that we want and we can get into that in more detail. But for me, I, I see the power of destiny and how it can free us. And it has freed me and given me that North star. Um, but I see also that 
I hate to say it, the downside, the flip side of destiny, where it's perpetuated stories, some that have been beneficial for me and uh, and some that have not. Well, there's one, one thing that comes to my mind as you're sharing all that, Casey, and it's actually a conversation I had yesterday with um, another friend of mine, Billy Atwell, and we were talking about this concept of purpose. And what I had come to as far as the realization goes, and I wrote this down on a sticky note, is in my opinion, it's not so much about finding your purpose. It's about defining and refining it over time. And that conversation and what you just described as far as striving to find that particular destiny in life, it's, I think it's the same thing as it relates yeah. to the purpose. You know, it's like finding that one thing when ultimately, once again, this is my opinion of it, but the purpose is to live. My yeah. purpose is to live. And then the purpose of me to live is to experience. What's beyond that, I have no idea. But I, I think that's a really interesting perspective from for me as I was reflecting upon it because I think far too often there are these conversations that I sometimes see where it's like, you know, you got to find your purpose. So it implies that the purpose has been lost. Yeah. And the reality of the matter for me, like my purpose is to live into experience. And then after time, I get to define which of those elements do I want to commit to further explore, further experience. And then I refine those things over time, which I think ties directly to what you just described as far as the destiny component, which I can relate to. Well, I instead of being attached to like one specific thing, it's more so just like that could be a milestone or along the roadmap, but not necessarily the ultimate thing that defines who Casey Berman is for the rest of his life. You're, You're right. I, I love what you said. You said the F word and the S word, right? Find and search. <laughs> and Thomas Jefferson used the P word, right? The pursuit of happiness. Like this, there's a blogger, Aaron Abke, A-B-K-E, who's, who he's a fantastic speaker on YouTube. Check him. I'd encourage everyone to check him out. And he said, he's like, call off the search. Now, this doesn't mean we just sit on our couch and, and, and watch uh, Days and Confused and eat potato chips and have it all come to you. You have to act. And I know Scott, we've talked about, I mean, Scott's one of the most intentional, ambitious, action-oriented people as our UO leg, and you guys have inspired me. I'm still going to act. There are things I want to do mm-hmm. um, while we're here. So, so please, I, I don't want everyone to interpret call off the search, meaning don't act. Definitely act. But this notion, it, it's what you're acting towards. And, and for me, just for me, this idea, I, Oleg, you hit the nail on the head. Like, I, I think if you continue to search to find the pursuit of happiness, I don't want to pursue happiness. I want to experience happiness right mm-hmm. now. And that's something that, that, that the Buddhists, that your most mindful friend down the block have, have shown you can do this right now. And this Jeffersonian idea that we're here for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, you know, that's something because then guess what? Madison Avenue, and this isn't conspiracy theory, Madison Avenue can sell us stuff. If you have this, if you have this, then you'll be happy or you'll be on the way to happy. I love what Mark Manson, uh, Mm -hmm. the author and writer said, and I think I brought this up before. He said that, you know, happiness 
is the process of becoming your ideal self. It's a process. Talk about something very unsexy and unglamorous. It's a process of becoming your ideal self, but a process is something repeatable. It's a system. And, and for me, that process is how literally just kind of getting in touch every day with, with what it is I want. And what is it I want? I'm kind of over this story. There's legacy of it. There's there's residue of the story of Casey Berman, as we all have. But I'm I just don't want to perpetuate that story anymore. And it does. My kids bring it up. My wife, the, my friends, people know it. I perpetuate it when I go meet new people on a professional stamp. You know, I I bring up leave law behind and all that. But I think the work that where I am just personally, what I encourage everyone to do is, in the same way, Scott and Oleg, you were sort of able to see beyond this identity that had been created for you, right? That you didn't want. I'm wondering if we go a next point up and sort of see beyond this identity that we've we've gone to and and see that maybe there is something else beyond the pursuit that keeps us all scrapping for it um, and that we can find kind of, um, you know, alignment, connectedness, a sense of connection where we are right now. Again, that does not mean it's mutually exclusive with ambition, action, goals, orientation. I mean, I'm behind the two of you. I'm one of the most ambitious people out there, and I have a ton of stuff I want to do. <laughs> I think it's just, I think it's just the core. What's driving the ambition? Something that I lack, or mm-hmm. is it something that I already have that I just like? To your point, of like I just want to optimize and even even just experience more so. I want to push back. And there's a number of ways in which I can and would push back, but I will attempt to narrow my focus. And I'm sure we will take that focus and diffuse it out in all sorts of different ways. Scott, I only said this so you knowing you'd push back. Exactly. And that's part of what these discussions are about, because we're not here to sit up and just agree with each other. That's not a conversation. Or it is, if it is, it's so one-dimensional and boring that I would encourage everyone to turn off. Like, note Uh, it. 2330 is when I start learning. So go ahead. (laughs) I would argue that the idea of destiny is not necessarily a story that you have written or that someone has written for you, but that it is something beyond us and that we are constantly evolving into. If we choose to accept our connection with something larger than who and what we are, and then either move into it intentionally or surrender and let it move us. I would argue that the story that you were told about who and what you were to be, the lawyer, the businessman, the professional, the doctor, whatever, was just that, a story. But that that operated in a separate realm from your destiny. And not only that, but that destiny is itself something that is forever moving and that what it ultimately is, is something that none of us have the perspective in any moment to see. Perhaps when we die, perhaps even during our lives, we may never see it. It could be that someone's destiny is to, and I knew a woman like this. The first job I had out of law school, she was a file clerk and for the for the for the case files in the litigation office that I worked in. And she was the best case file 
file clerk that there was. She loved her job. It gave her just the right of amount of challenge. It kept her busy. She was friendly and happy every day. And you know what? The litigants who were the subject of the lawsuits in those files all ultimately benefited from her organization. Their lives were always altered in one way or another by the litigation, whether it was if the the city of New York, which was the litigant that I was defending, ended up paying more or less money or having to correct some of its behavior or make changes in some of the infrastructure within the city or whatever. That was a change that happened in society in no small part because of her work. The litigants, if they were received a settlement or a trial money, you know, they those these cases were not able to be litigated without an organized file in place. And ultimately, then her story and what her destiny was fed into something, into a number of different narratives that was much larger and richer than she would ever be able to conceive of. Now, let's say, and when I knew her, she was in her, her late 60s. Let's say a few years later, she passed away. One might say that the story that was written about her was just, quote unquote, just some file clerk. But the concept of destiny that I will argue is beyond that limited narrative that was any of us are capable of giving to her, giving to her, because the world that we live in is so much more rich and complex than that. And we don't know a child Who's, who may have received a huge amount of compensation due to some injury that it happened, could have, because of that compensation, been able to do something with his or her life that might not have other ha- happened otherwise. And that itself could lead to change. And so her destiny could have been something of major significance, even if the only story that she was ever told was that you'll be nothing more than a file clerk. And it could also be that she had no story for herself at all. But that doesn't mean that what her ultimate role or what her ultimate place as a piece, as a thread in the fabric was, didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And that's what I would argue. The narrative that was thrown out for Scott Mason and Oleg, I'm hearing too, but Oleg, correct me if I'm incorrect, and I I would never dare to speak for you, Mm -hmm. was that you'll be something. That woman may or may not have read my destiny. She probably Mm -hmm. just wanted to say something to make me feel good or make me feel good about myself. But the course that she set me on was a particular thing. When I went to law school, the quote unquote destiny that I could have told myself as a human being was that I would be a lawyer. But the destiny that the universe itself had was something different. My own limitation in an attempt to define my own story was ultimately what held me back from fully self-actualizing. And only when I was able to accept that there might be something out there that was drawing a bigger picture, was I able to begin to step into that without knowing what it is or having at this point any story at all. So at what point then I'm curious to hear um, from you, Scott, and as well as you, Casey, at what point within that journey, not necessarily looking for a specific percentage, you know, 50% this, 50% that, but when looking at this concept of destiny, how do you understand it through the lens of how much of that journey is due to collaboration from other people and the impact 
such as me doing the work that I'm doing now, impacting someone else's future perspective five or 10 years down the road and becoming a part of their destiny, their purpose. And then which elements of that are solely onto you? Like I know, Casey, you talked about the choice, you know, like you, and I believe that like you as an individual, you get to choose what you did. Same thing with you, Scott, you got to choose what you did with that reading. I mean, she said that to you, you could have brushed it off or you could have stepped into it and then started to, to explore. Yes. What does that look like for me? What is greatness? And that could have taken you on a different path. And that's something that I'm curious about. If, if it is true that there is this form of collaboration, whether it's higher power, other people impacting your own journeys and your own destiny, what role do you play within that? And that could be a loaded question. <laughs> so how do you, how do either of you understand that is it the role that we play in the journey in defining in the, destiny correct scott you want to go or you want me to oh uh, no I, I i just went off <laughs> so i'll let you go off <laughs> unless you want me to go off again no 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 i do i do want you don't to. don't <laughs> so again i I'm trying to not view it as a journey. Okay. So the more I view, I have somewhere to get to. And I think that is the, the normal programming and the normal story that we all live in. And I don't pursuit of happiness. Right. I, so I'm trying not to view it as a journey. I still do. I mean, I'm born in 1973. I'm born in America. I'm born in this time frame. I grew up in a certain certain group of people, of course, I still think of it as a journey. Um, but, you know, yesterday, I, it's a beautiful day here in San Francisco, and I had to clean out my garage, and I had some work to do. And I got angry about just having to do this again. And I looked at all this stuff that we've bought that I now I want to recycle and throw out. And I thought of all the money I've spent on things that now we're just dumping into a big blue recycling bin. And you know, my kids weren't that nice come four o'clock and, you know, my wife didn't appreciate me. I mean, I go on and on. Right. <laughs> so I definitely have definitely have those moments. And what I'm trying to do is to realize that there's a certain I, I quote I brought up with you before is that, you know, we the second half of your life and anyone can do this and you don't need to hit midlife crisis age. But the second half of your life is where you unlearn all or most of what you learned in the beginning. And I think that's true. It's definitely true for me. And I think it's true for a lot of my peers. That's why we're even sort of having this talk and self-exploration happens. And so for me, my role in this is to start letting go. Again, doesn't mean I don't act. It doesn't mean I have intention. It doesn't mean I aspire to things or or want things or or look for experiences like you've mentioned. Like, but I think right now, you know, this idea of destiny. I'm trying to move sort of beyond destiny. I think for me, this idea of of destiny is that the scripts have been written, um, and I can easily fall into well, if the script's written, what's the point? Um, I am going to do something whether I like it or not. And uh, the destiny could be a good destiny. You make all this money, you help a bunch of people, you live in a big mansion, you have great time. Or it could also be a negative destiny. And you're just destined for a mundane life, one that doesn't align with you. You are destined for anxiety. You are destined for depression. 
you are destined to live a short life. Everyone in your family had a heart attack by 60. Good luck. Everyone in your family has, you know, fill in the blank, right? The poor are always with us. No pain, no gain. Money doesn't grow on trees. I mean, think of all these destinies, whether good or bad, that we we live. And so what I where I think where I'm trying to do is to and this isn't like an elite or be more or so on. I want to free myself of that. I want to not have to live in that destiny anymore. Again, it doesn't mean I don't live in the matrix. I don't live by the rules. I don't have fun. I don't act. But I think for me, what I'm really trying to do is to kind of um, move beyond this idea that there's a certain structure or guardrails I have to live by. And so when I close my eyes, when I experience, like you said, like I think my role in it is to calm my thoughts and to not be calm or peaceful in a boring way. You can be calm and peaceful in the middle of a big city and something exciting, but really to um, kind of see that the emperor has no clothes and to kind of see that there's a whole new choice I can make, which isn't necessarily having to choose one of the destinies that I've been given. Mm. I don't know if that makes sense. You want me to give like a real life example to it or was that too amorphous? No, it makes sense. Okay. I mean, what I think what it makes me think of, and I know this is probably more of a question question for Scott's journey, but um, destiny, I wonder how much of that equals to having certain things be predetermined. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly you know? what I was thinking. And that's about. what I was thinking is like when it comes to these cert- uh challenges or circumstances melody brought up a really good point here she says i see them more as challenges rather than destinies you know if if things are quote unquote predetermined and that there is a form of destiny then therefore every single challenge and obstacle in life is meant to be a part of that Mm -hmm. and then within that like what's the role is it the willpower to choose or does that even matter at that point if let it's me quote unquote part of a larger picture anyway before scott jump jump uh, scott i want to say one thing sorry scott to what you said oleg about creating mm-hmm. and one thing that i heard someone say was that all of these scripts are out there it's because I'll, I'll get down i'll get nihilistic i got one script <laughs> and this is all i can do oh my god what's the point point? and i think that brings a lot of sadness and depression, even suicide to people, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And this is, and I see it in a lot of unhappy lawyers. Really? I got 20 more years of this? Really? Mm-hmm. But, you know, Oleg, you mentioned about not discovering or searching, like I have to find that one thing. And I heard someone say that there's a lot of different scripts. And the question is whether we make a choice to align with a different version of it, whether it's choose your own adventure or whether it's this idea. I know in an airplane, if you set the autopilot on a certain um, a certain degree and where to go, if you tweak that just a little bit, just mm-hmm. a little bit in the amount of miles that you go in a different direction, it can be huge, right? Mm-hmm. So it's the same thing here. I think a lot of where my purpose is, is to saying, do I want this? If not, there is another script, another destiny, if you will, that I can step into more money, more love, less anxiety. And why don't I, at this point now, start connecting with that, intending for that, acting Mm. for that? That's another way that I've been able to get over this sadness, if you will, that really I just have one 
destiny. And maybe that challenge that Melody brings up is maybe the challenge is to realize that there's other ones we can go into and we don't need to find them. They're already there. We just literally need to kind of course correct a mm -hmm. little bit into stepping into that, um, into that portal, into that door, whatever imagery you want to use. I would be cautious about the idea of confusing destiny with hard determinism. Can you define the two? Hard determinism is, in my opinion, mm -hmm. the idea that there is, as Casey was suggesting earlier, and as you were too, Oleg, a set pre-written script mm -hmm. that our lives follow, that some higher force has set in a stone tablet that we have no choice but to live out, irrespective of how hard we might try. I posit that that is not destiny. I do think, I would say that there is, I would, I, in fact, I would challenge us all uh -huh. to view determinism and destiny in broader terms than we might otherwise be thinking about them. So for instance, as Duncan um, Leaf pointed out during our last podcast, there is the idea of soft determinism, which means that there are certain constraints that are put on all of us that determine outcomes, and we have to accept it. And I don't remember where, Oleg, you and I were talking about this, but I seem to remember having this conversation with you in particular. Um, but for instance, our destinies are determined by the physical limitations of our bodies. We cannot fly away from a forest fire because we do not have wings. Mm -hmm. That is a deterministic, predetermined fact. We cannot become an insect because we do not have the power to transmogrify our physical forms, at least in this life. That's a fact. And so there is a certain level of hard determinism that impacts our ability day to day and the ability of us to step out of our existence or our ways of thinking are limited by the physical realities that we live in. As much as we may think, for instance, that the scripts that others give us are limiting, mm -hmm. the scripts that require us to be human beings genuinely do limit us, at least as most of us experience this life. I don't think that there are many people that would argue, for instance, if they wanted to be a dinosaur, that they could literally wake up tomorrow and become one living in the Mesozoic era. So I would argue then that determinism is not necessarily the hardest, most fixed version, just as Christianity is not always just fundamentalist Christianity. Mm -hmm. Soft determinism means that there may be freedom of choice within the confines of, uh, and a set of choices within the general confines within which we operate day to day. Yeah. So I have certain intellectual abilities and the choices that I can make as to occupations related are ultimately determined by the limitations that those intellectual abilities put on me. Things like IQ or mathematical ability, for instance, keep me out of certain professions utterly and altogether. I don't know if I'm happy or if I'm sad about that. However, within the range 
of intellectual abilities that I've been predetermined to have, there are choices. Also, and so I would say that there are always choices more or less constrained by the determining factors within which we are all captured or within, within which we all live, which include other things too, culture, social class, a whole other host of different factors, which we may or may not, depending on where and what we are in this world, have, have access to act on. But there are always some choices that we have. And what and I will also argue that if we accept then that determination is not necessarily a hard and fast set in stone, written by God in stone tablet sort of phenomenon, mm-hmm. phenomena, then destiny itself is something that it is important, I would argue, for us to be cautious about limiting as to its own definition. Mm-hmm. We Destiny might or might not involve a journey. I would argue that it probably does, but what we choose to make of that journey, the extent to which we have agency in that journey and what that outcome is, I believe it is at our risk to limit. If destiny for each of us is being within a gigantic gushing river, mm-hmm. there may be a zillion different currents within that river that we can still go on and end up in and go at a slow pace or even swirl around in little circles or rush down. Where does that destiny go? Where does that river go? Well, ultimately, all of the rivers are tributaries into an ocean, but the vastness of that ocean is something beyond what we can imagine because we're human. We're limited. Look at the vastness of the universe. How many of us can truly comprehend or appreciate that? Mm -hmm. We may end up in a number of different currents that may take us to a number of different points within that larger ocean. But it doesn't mean that that river itself doesn't exist. Nor does it mean that we are defined or limited to the current that we choose to operate in. I'm going to have Casey follow that up while I Google transmogrify. (laughs) You know what it means. (laughs) Sky, you talk about limit and it made me think, I love what you just said. And it, it made me think about, I think one of the main limits that we have in our world right now, this thing we call reality. And I'm a liberal arts major, so don't push me on the science too much, but it's this Newtonian <laughs> Newtonian idea of cause and effect. And for us, for someone to say, you know, Casey, what are you talking about? It's this idea of, it's like asking if, we've talked about this, you know, ask to, to, to pick up on your river theme, asking a fish, how's the water? They would say, well, water. Mm-hmm. I mean, they just live in it. That's like saying, hey, Casey, how, how's the monotheism going? Monotheism? What, I mean, what, what are you talking about monotheism? Like, I just believe in one God. That's what we do. I mean, the Romans and the Greeks and the Egyptians, huh, all those gods, huh, funny, right? We just, one God, that's what you do in, in our day and age. Um, and we could go on and on. Casey, how's the capitalism coming? How's the entrepreneurship? How's the free market? Free market? Like, what are you talking about free market? I, don't, I, I never think about that. And, but then you go somewhere else 
whether in the past or even now, and you ask those questions and they'll look at you like, what are you talking about? We mm -hmm. believe in a pantheon of gods or we believe in a more communal society. So there are these things that we swim in that we don't even, we didn't even realize. And one of them is this idea of cause and effect. Something happens and a woman gives me a reading and it either causes something and it causes something, whether it's moving beyond or whether it's reaffirming and you become, you work in a retail shop or, or something that, that you stay in that town and you don't become who you became. And so for me, this idea of identity is really based on, I, I'm seeing a lot of it is based on cause and effect. Now with quantum physics, with a lot of the other work like David R. Hawkins, who I've talked about, the science is sort of catching up to a lot of this woo-woo stuff that we talk about that the sages, Buddha, Jesus, you name it, have talked about over the years. And I think that's very exciting. It's going to take probably another few hundred years, but I really am excited that there's this overlap between something quantifiable and the thing that we feel. But in the meantime, I can't wait a few hundred years. As much as I am a believer in science in so many ways, I don't think science answers everything. It can't. They even admit it doesn't. And there's an element to me that I feel that I don't think. And I have just learned from Alan Watts and Ram Das and my business partner, Adam Millett at Leave Law Behind and, you, and so many other people that there are things I feel that are unexplainable in the Newtonian cause and effect. And what this comes to is that where I'm going is that destiny is this journey. Now, maybe you say it a journey without a goal, without an end, but I like the idea of about a process because I, if I have to get somewhere because that's where I'm going to ring the bell and attain a certain level of whatever it is I'm looking for, whatever it is you're looking for, that to me is depressing. Mm -hmm. I, I actually will dare say that I agree with you about that one, Casey. By the way, I've, I, I want to say hi to Kenneth. It's always good to see you. But I'm dying of curiosity. There's a LinkedIn user who, are on our end, we can't see who it is. And I, I want to know who you are so I can hit, say hi right back. So if you wouldn't mind just saying your name, I, I'd be so grateful for that. And I'm sure that Oleg and, and Casey would be too. And um, with that... I don't remember what I was saying. <laughs> no, actually, I'm just joking. I do agree with you. I think that, you know, a, a lot of this stuff is going to be a mystery and it's going to be a matter of thinking. But I, I do think that um, the idea that we are, uh, what you were talking about with regards to uh, seeking a particular destination mm -hmm. is something that I am very challenged with. I do not personally agree with that. I have found that with, with that as a goal, every time I have sought a personal journey, I've been lucky enough in most cases to be able to achieve it. And it has never brought me happiness. However, one other thing too, that I am curious as to thoughts on from anyone in this world as to whether happiness and why happiness is something that everyone always seeks. I'll be honest. I don't seek it. I've never sought it. How do you know if you're happy? I have no idea since it's not even something I'm looking for. Mm. <laughs> for 
for me, I, I will I will address, and I'd love to hear from anyone else who's who's listening. We always love your comments and your thoughts. So come in with questions or push back or disagree with me or uh, be sure to disagree with Scott. So <laughs> for me, the how so how do I bring all this woo woo stuff I'm talking about into real life? I literally realize I'm in reality. I'm in the world. I'm a body. There's a table. I get it. After this podcast, my family has something planned and we're going to go do something. I get it. When I hit a particularly high note in life, when I hit mm -hmm. a particularly low note on a Tuesday at 10.57 a.m., the small things. It doesn't need to be a big tragic thing. The small mm -hmm. things. What I think centers me and keeps me aligned and happy and joyful and loving and not go down a rabbit hole of, of, of suffering is this idea that there's something different. I didn't say more. There's something different than the cause and effect matrix that I'm in. And whether you're Keanu Reeves and you know the Mooney movie, whether you've seen the Truman Show, there's a lot of movies out there that kind of talk about this, this something else, kind of every Disney movie does. But there's a reason. And so if there's one takeaway I'd love for everyone to have, which is just that idea of that when you know what hits a fan or even when you have a big, big win, just realize that there is another dimension. It doesn't need to get scary. It doesn't need to be woo-woo, but there is that other dimension, your soul, your heart, all of that. And connect with it. Connect with it for five seconds. There's a story, you know, the, I think it's, a, it, it's attributed to a Chinese story, the, the, the farmer and the, um, the son and uh, the, the emperor is coming to raise ar the army. Um, and he wants to recruit everyone and his son uh, breaks his leg. And mm -hmm. he said, you know, this story, right? Mm -hmm. And everyone says, mm -hmm. oh, no, your son broke your leg. That's so bad. But then the emperor comes to recruit all the young kids and his son son can't go into the army. And they say, oh, my God. And he says, maybe, you know, maybe he doesn't say it's horrible. He says, maybe. Then the emperor comes and says, oh, my God, your you, your son was able to avoid the draft. That's uh, that's such a great thing. And he says, maybe. And then his son goes and heals and takes the horses out and um, loses the horse and comes back. And they'll say, oh, my God, that was horrible. And he says, maybe. And then the horse comes back with 30 other horses that he found. And they said, oh, my God, it was great. That lost horse brought back 30 horses. And he says, maybe. No, I'm not saying be boring. I'm, I butchered that story, but I'm not saying be boring. I'm not saying just be even keel. Like you want your ups and downs. What I am saying is in the ups and downs that we have in this cause and effect world, just realize there's another dimension of peace, alignment, connectedness, faith, confidence, whatever it is that we all can tap to, into even at 11.57 a.m. On a, on a random Tuesday. Mm -hmm. I have to interject something here. <laughs> so this mysterious LinkedIn user, maybe it's Gabe Leal. I'm not 100% sure. Something in the lead so. mm -hmm. um, says that you always disagree with me. <laughs> and I have to say, right, like that goes as to why I live. And I, and I actually love that. I'm not seeking, I'm not seeking happiness. I would maybe ha be happy if everyone just agreed with me. Um, but I, I, I actually think that that is a, a, a sign that the journey that I'm going on is in the right direction. So I actually well, want to say, whoever you are, thank you for that. Please keep disagreeing with me. Scott, keep what me do sharp. 
I am curious, although let me jump in, like what, because I have ideas of what I'm seeking or, or wanting to connect with. What is it your, I'm curious, oh, like Scott, what are you, what are you seeking? And if we don't like the S word, what are you, what are you trying to align with or, mm-hmm. or to discover or connect with or fall into? Scott Mason, go ahead. I am merely seeking to fulfill my role. And I understand that that role may change and it may not be what I think it is. And it may be smaller, bigger, or perhaps utterly unrelated to what I expect. I seek to be connected with my rudder. That's all. And I don't know that that will bring me happiness. I don't care. Yeah. And if happiness is pure joy all of the time, I mean, we've talked about it. I don't know if there, there's pain in life. I don't know if pure joy is is totally possible. But I like the word. There's a connectedness with your rudder. And what does a rudder do? It it helps steer. It helps. It may not guide, but it helps steer. It keeps you on track. It it keeps you aligned. It keeps you confident. If you lose your rudder on a ship, I can only imagine the feelings that you're you're thinking. Mm-hmm. Oleg, what about you? What what are you searching for, hoping to follow? I think, I think for me, and I think there are layers beyond this, but to a degree, I have already found that thing that I've been looking for. Uh, one of the first things was understanding of my own self, understanding of my own experience, um, understanding that whatever the circumstances that I was born into do not have to be the circumstances that I live today. I think that's to me, like that's what guides much of this is. Mm-hmm. And that's why I had asked the question of how much of this do you believe is pretty predetermined and how much of it can you actually change through your own willpower and choice? Mm-hmm. Because I, my experience, I can't speak for anyone else's experiences because there might be individual with circumstances that they can't change. And yeah. uh, for, for many different reasons, but I know that for me through consciously um, practicing that choice and decision-making, I was able to kind of flip the script. I was able to get onto another uh, path, another river within a larger river, so to speak. Now, what I am aligning with and seeking is a sense of community and community for different reasons. A, to be able to... um, relate and further understand my life and the meaning of it and B to be able to pass on the things that I have learned or am actively learning. Cause I think that's, that's a, that's an important uh, element to who I am is it's, I don't choose to have conversations where I'm solely there to pass on the lessons and the wisdom and everything else. But I also choose to have conversations like this where I can sit there and I don't know what it is that X, Y, and Z is going to produce or what the goal or outcome that I'm particularly seeking. Uh, Community is another important role in me in my life because it has helped me develop, further develop my own sense of belief and confidence. I know that the two of you can relate to that. You know, I've had times throughout my life where I didn't feel like people believed in me and it sucked. It sucked to be in those situations and circumstances. Um, 
but at the same time, as challenging as it was, it was also a, a blessing, so to speak, because then I know that, okay, if other people aren't going to believe in me, then I'm the only one that has to believe in myself to keep going, to keep finding the way. So I think those are the things that I'm seeking. I, I can say that I'm at peace with where I'm at, but that's only because I've worked on it for however many years by now and really help myself understand that the challenges, once again, in my opinion, the challenges are truly here to serve me because there is a reason that I can attach to each and every single one of them. And there is a meaning that I can choose behind each and every single one of them. While I don't seek happiness, I just received a moment of happiness <laughs> when Kenneth Dunner called me a liar. <laughs> Kenneth, you made me laugh and you told me to savor the flavor. That's speaking my sort of language, homeboy. That made me happy for a minute. <laughs> Melody, I also loved your comment about your goal, about becoming your best you. I think that's a, that, that is, I mean, I'll speak for myself. That's something I strive for, um, daily basis. Now, I, I don't know if I necessarily subscribe to the concept of being, uh, 1% better than you were yesterday. I have no way how, I don't know how to measure that. I don't know what percentage I was yesterday or the day before and to be 1% better. But I, if anything, how I'm interpreting that it's, my consciousness continues to evolve and I'm becoming aware, a lot more aware of things. So for example, yesterday, if I didn't recycle, but today I have a different perspective around recycling and I'm choosing to recycle that to me is a better version. Um, and I think the other thing that the two of you pointed out that I found interesting to note and to address is this whole concept of incremental change instead of trying to, and that's, that also applies to the destiny. Or purpose instead of trying to find and figure it out all at once know that i have a lifetime to do this and it will probably take me a lifetime to figure out different components of it where where i go with this is there's two ways to look I've, i'm hearing rudder confidence uh, evolve be my best self and all of these are, are words out of my mouth and i i love it and so when your awareness evolves, as it continues to evolve, like, well, what do we ultimately get to? Mm -hmm. And for me, and I'm, I'm pulling it from an Alan Watts lecture I heard, but we can either look at, at the world as something happening to me mm -hmm. or something I create. And if you create this, you're gone. Now, before you throw tomatoes at me or someone says... <laughs> you know, what does that mean? I am God. Nobody wants to hear that. And I was wondering if I should even say that here. Mm -hmm. But so we don't want to call ourselves God or universe or nature or all that. So then, but at the same time, we don't really like, unless you're making money off of it or you've been programmed so much, we don't really like the idea of a very mean God who's evil with a long white beard and and punishes us, even though that's how we grew up. Yeah, some people love that. Some people love it. Mm -hmm. 
but or they're 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 trained to love it. But if we don't subscribe to that, this is happening to me. Then the other angle is I am creating this, but then we don't like that because we're taught to be humble and you're essentially saying you're God. But what if I told us all we are God? So how does that change things for us besides an ego trip, which I'm not saying we go on? What I think I am seeking is a level and and maybe I'm hoping, maybe I've been seeking it and I need again to call off the search and mm-hmm. literally just meditate into it or fall into it or have faith in it that this will happen. But when I fall back on the idea that we are all God, we are all nature. When I look into your eyes right here on the video screen and don't see you as Scott or Oleg or with an identity, but actually just see you as this, this energy. And when that happens, boy, do I feel good. Mm -hmm. Boy, do I feel great. I don't know if it's happiness. I don't know what it is. Because words, when you think about it, the world works in vibration. Words are a, as much as we love English and say how great words are a horrible way to transmit some type of communication when you really think about it. Mm -hmm. Being in the zone and feeling and all of that is really how the world works. But words is, is the substitute that we have. So what is it that I'm seeking? And there are a lot of things I'm seeking. Happiness is what I want to seek. And now I think I'm at a point where I'm done seeking. And I think I just want to fall back in and let go and let the wind in the sails, which is so hard for me because I'm type A. I want to control everything. I want to find it. And I want to get it done by yesterday. But there's, there's, I'm trying to connect and align whatever word it used with the fact that I am part of this energy. I mean, there's a reason Yahweh, yud heh vav heh, Yahweh, the God Yahweh in Hebrew, yud heh vav heh is Hayah, which is present and future and past. It's a combination of all of the tenses in the actual language of Hebrew, archaic, uh, old Hebrew, as well as current. There's a reason the, the Jewish God has no name. There's no label. There's no identity. Now, that was turned into Jehovah when it was anglicized, that word. But Yahweh is this, there's no there there. And there doesn't need to be. Do you think a part of that, though, is influenced largely by the culture that we live in, such as the one of the United States? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it was influenced, you know, when you, I mean, yes. Yes, I do. But I think it was influenced by when when paul picked up on this i mean the gospels are the good word and i mean i think christianity nietzsche said the only true christian was jesus and i don't want to get into dispute but i don't mean to do that i don't mean to be controversial but i think what his point was that the his teachings were politicized afterwards after his death and were taken and we all know what happened. I mean, think about it. Christianity after this little rogue band of, of Jews who wanted to change things within 300 years, it toppled the Roman empire and, and became the, the religion of the middle East and now the biggest religion in, in the world. And so for me, um, these beautiful thoughts and ideas were definitely ingrained in culture, you know, to, to, to benefit or, uh, the ma- to most people or, or to not. And I definitely think nowadays in the modern world where we are in America, wherever you is, it's, it's definitely been, been changed. Do either of you know or are aware of 
different cultures around the world that don't operate from a sense of a destination or a single destiny? I think that there are some, I know I've read studies of Aboriginal cultures, the few that are remaining that, that believe in that. Um, they definitely have their, their own ways of looking at things, but mm-hmm. there are definitely uh, a, a lot of um, sort of pre-religion, pre-modern type of cultures that, that don't think that are, if you will, are, are more in the moment, I mm-hmm. think, in, in the Western world would say. doesn't mean they don't have their own downsides or their own non-beneficial ways. That being said, it's kind of hard because we've eradicated many of them and it's hard to hard to observe them, but I have, I have heard about that, but I think it's, it's incomplete. Mm -hmm. Scott, I want to give you a chance to uh, add two cents. If you have anything to add before we take our break. Um, I would like to add a lot. And in fact, I think it might be a great time to have a little chapter break and maybe, (laughs) um, you know, we can, I'll open it up the next chapter with my salvo. That's awesome. And Gabriel disagree with me. Don't forget. <laughs> uh, for those that are listening right now, Melody, Gabe, and Kenneth, and so many others, uh, we'll be taking a 10-minute break here, and then we'll be back to continue this conversation as it relates to destiny and resilience, destiny and gratitude, and what are the connections and relationships between them. So please stay tuned, take a break of your own, go get a cup of coffee, water, whatever it is, and then we'll see you back in 10 minutes.
All right, we are back. <laughs> we are back and we are back with a new topic here. And that is, is there a connection between destiny and gratitude? And considering the fact that Scott, you skipped out on us in the last response to the topic, you, uh, you have the honor of starting this one. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'll actually start again with a story that tacks on to something that Casey said earlier. And it was about nihilism. And it was about the idea that we each are in our own little way, potentially God's creating the world that we are living in or the creators of the reality and, and of the future that we might have independent of any particular higher power slash destiny. The belief that I was capable of becoming something ultimately led me here to New York City where I went to law school and then began a fairly lengthy career in government. The work environments that I was in can most accurately be described for the most part as toxic. They were highly competitive at the executive level. There was a lot of turnover, firings, demotions, public humiliations occurred all the time. It was very much dog eat dog, human eat, eat human, and I adapted accordingly. And as I adapted and chose to stay longer and longer in that environment, I found myself further and further disconnected from the idea that I might have a destiny. Instead, adopting an inner attitude that refl was reflective of the outer attitude that I was in. After a while, I began to adopt the belief that there was no caring higher power or powers or force in the universe at all. That we were just here in the universe by random accident in its vastness to live our lives as we could create. And so I believed that the only destiny that I or anyone could have was that which I would create myself. Mm. Superficially, that was profoundly liberating because in a way, the world was my oyster to do as I saw fit. But it also sowed the seeds of my own destruction because without the idea that there was a universe that in any way cared or saw me as anything other than a random accident, I understood on a fundamental level that I had been given nothing and I had nothing to be grateful for. I also, and this belief system directly led to it, carried with me the idea that in order to create my own destiny, in order for my life to be what I willed it to be, I had to then dominate my circumstances. And my circumstances, by the way, included others around me. And so I had no problem 
and in fact, even viewed it as an imperative to dominate those around me. A small little action will illustrate my mentality beautifully. I was up in a position of considerable authority, one of my jobs, and I had a beautiful corner office with a chair that I made sure behind my desk reflected that position. And there was a meeting that I called people into my office and included an external consultant. And one of the, he was a little bit younger than me. And he, or I, without really thinking, I think, grabbed that chair to sit in. And I'll never forget walking in, snapping my fingers, looking at him, and simply saying, out. <laughs> and yes, he got out of that chair, pulled it, and I sat in. And that was the sort of thing that I look back on it, actually, with a lot of shame and regret, embarrassment. But I felt at the time... <clears throat> not a particular joy or happiness approaching the situation that way. But if I was going, if I had no destiny, if the universe didn't give a damn about me, then it was up to me to do everything in my power, everywhere I went to create that for myself, to dominate the world that I was in. So I would have the power, the agency to be, to be able to make something of myself, to be able to craft that destiny as I saw fit. Like I said a minute ago, not believing that there was anything that cared about me or that was building anything more special for me than just what I did left me without any appreciation. And, and, and I assure you all, I had no appreciation for anything, anything. When that career ended, at a time and place that was not of my choosing. Although I did, you know, I did, I, I look, I did voluntarily resign from that era, but it was, it was a, a, it was a resignation that was, you know, it was under with, because I was not able to work with someone that I needed to be working with in order to be successful and, in, in, you know, to further advance my career. I, um, without a sense of gratitude, had no tethering to anything that was positive in the world without any ability or any structure or anything for me to dominate and create this world. I had no tools for being able to build another chapter. Mm. I was left with nothing, nothing, nothing positive to live for no ability to create something for myself. And that was the dead end that my own nihilism had led me to. It was a grave that I dug for myself. And so what I will say is that to believe that was for me the ultimate drive in a beautiful car directly into the world's thickest tree. And it took me years to recover. Do you think gratitude played a big, big role within that? In, in I didn't have gratitude. No. And afterwards, in oh, understanding, well, yes. understanding gratitude 
So one of the things that happened was it, this, you know, I voluntarily left my job at a time in which the Great Recession was still, it had was technically over, but the job market had not recovered yet, particularly here in New York City. Mm-hmm. And the newspapers and, and magazines and online reporting sources all had horror story after horror story about middle-aged executives exactly like me who were unemployed and entering long-term unemployment and were possibly going to be permanently unemployed. I was very frightened about that. So I went to see a career counselor. The career counselor said to me something which really began to crack the doors open to something that was a little lighter and brighter. And that was, he said, write down things that you have he said, first of all, he said, write it in a journal. And I think I may have mentioned to you this to you all before, if I didn't, um, you know, then I'll just repeat it. If I did, if I'm repeating myself, forgive me, uh, you know, t- write a journal. I-, I thought that was ridiculous. I thought that was something teenage girls did. Like I confused it with a diary, but I agreed <laughs> to do it anyway. <laughs> and he said, in that journal, write gratitude. I said, I don't have anything to be grateful for. Find something. So I did. And I will say that being forced to find something positive in the world reminded me of what a small part I was of it and how little of an impact my supposed domination of it had really had in any way that was meaningful at all outside of my own little mind. Mm -hmm. And so it shrank my ego in a way that needed to be shrunk. And it also tethered me to the positive, the beautiful, and the wonderful in the world. And that moved me away from nihilism. And it began a long journey that took me to reject completely the idea of me being the master of my own universe and of my own fate. It also put me in a position where I could be resilient. Because if I was not tethered to anything positive, including positivity in my own future, Mm -hmm. I had nothing to live for. And if I have nothing to live for, then I could not be resilient. Mm. Yeah. I like that for so many different reasons. I think the first one that comes to mind is, you mentioned, Scott, when you forced yourself to be grateful. I know for me that was um, that has been a process that I tried to implement within my life as often as I can. But literally in situations where I feel like there's nothing to be grateful for, just using it as a reminder that there's nothing to. I'm assuming that there's nothing to be grateful for because I haven't brought anything to my awareness that happened with or without my control. And I I know for me, I share a. Uh, I, well, actually, no, I don't share a similar journey as far as walking into a corner office and telling someone to get up and, you know, go find a new seat. I don't think I've ever done it. And I'm not saying that as a means to shame or embarrass you or anything. I just had a I'm ashamed day. of it. You don't need to shame me. Well, <laughs> Scott, why do, you, why do you keep snapping at me and Oleg then? I mean, you just, you're always. <laughs> no, but <laughs> to, to. To continue on with with this thought of looking at lessons and takeaways from the experiences, 
I think for me, the more that I think about it, that is a form of gratitude in itself. Looking at the experience and trying to understand it through the lens of what was it there to teach me and what has it helped me see differently that I haven't seen before. I know that when I started to do that and I started to, I started to do this somewhat recently. I know the two of you know this, but some of the people that are listening to this right now may not. Uh, it was a friend of mine that recommended me a book called uh, 365 Thank Yous by John Kralik that really changed my own perspective because it, it gave me um, a practice through which I can intentionally be grateful each and every single day by writing a thank you card to someone in my life, person at a grocery store, person that held the door open for me, just all these quote unquote random encounters. And what I have found through that particular practice, and that's where I think there is a connection for me between destiny and gratitude. And that is when I started to look at my past and many of the people within my past, not only childhood, but past as in the last hour, the last minute, and especially people that were um, described differently by the society. For example, like my birth mom. She was an alcoholic. At least that's the, the way the society painted the picture for me around her. Incapable, irresponsible, and all these other things. And when I started to look at her through the lens of gratitude and how in me accepting her for who she was, which played a role in my quote-unquote destiny or purpose, I started to realize and find all these lessons and takeaways that she taught me, like the ability to be driven, um, you know, the ability to believe in something, the hope, all these other things. So I think there there is an interesting component to forcing myself to be grateful in situations where I feel like there is nothing to be grateful for, because what I've learned and what my personal experience has taught me is that there is always something to be grateful for, always. Even in the tiniest of actions, that action still happened and it didn't have to, or it didn't have to turn out the way that it did. And yeah. that's where I found that like, there's a lot of beauty within that. And I know Casey, you shared similar belief and, and Scott to it. Um, have you had a similar experience, Casey? Well, I'll say that the both of you, I mean, Scott, that was a beautiful story and, and Oleg, you as well. I mean, they're, they're just beautiful, touching, uh, raw stories that you both just told. And what it, you're absolutely right, Oleg, that as Scott, there was that, that, that choice, that turning point. And I, and there's, there's a line that says a miracle is literally a change in perspective. And that's what you all did. You guys created miracles. You literally shifted your perspective on things, which is hard to do, which really can't come from somewhere else. Yeah, the career coach advised you, Scott, to do it, but you did it. And you, I'm not saying you, ego, put you on our shoulders, give you a trophy. I just mean there was a, a you both listened to another voice. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you didn't listen to the, whatever you want to call it, the ego, the matrix, culture, um, the depression, the identity, whatever, whatever you connect with. But you went somewhere else. You listened to another voice, which was, it's all fine. It's all good. I know it sounds crazy, and I know this hasn't happened to you in the past. You listen to faith. I know I have seen no evidence of this in the past in my life, but I'm going to believe 
it can happen and it will happen. I mean, talk about faith. And I don't necessarily just mean religious faith. I just mean faith. And really what it came down to was trust. Mm -hmm. And I'm seeing a connection that, you know, you guys made a choice to trust in something you haven't even seen before, maybe once or, or never in your life, but you trusted it for some reason. That led you to express gratitude, which led you to shift your perspective on something. And not in a, you know, what they call a bliss ninny, hey, everything's fine, right? But just in a, okay, I can do this. Okay, this is all right. Or whatever, whatever it was. And then ultimately you both change the course of what you're what you have and what you will experience in this life. I mean, if that is not movie material or awe-inspiring, <laughs> and maybe I connected the dots wrong. Maybe there's another dot here or there or it's a different way. But you know, just off the hip, connecting those dots of your beautiful stories, uh if that isn't awe-inspiring or movie making, I don't know what is. I also think that what you just shared, Casey, it kind of speaks to the larger theme of even this event, survive to thrive. I think gratitude plays has played such a big role for me between yeah. going from one state to the other like truly I, appreciating those moments of quote unquote survival as things that have helped me see the world through a completely different lens. I, I, I like this point. I wrote it down here. Miracle is changing perspective. That's why I think I believe in this space so much because <laughs> by choosing to create an open space where people of all kinds of backgrounds and experiences can come together and simply share their perspectives and then hope that someone else's perspective can shift your own perspective. Mm -hmm. Like that's well, the ultimate thing that I think I believe in. And that's why I think these conversations are so powerful. And with people like Melody and Kenneth and everyone else that chooses to join in, it, it just it creates that possibility. You're right on. I love that you named it that. And, you know, survive has a negative connotation or, mm -hmm. or just sort of a base connotation with some. And so, and, and I don't want to look at it that way, but I think if you, if you go back to Scott's story in, in a small rural town, which fit for some people, but for Scott, that was surviving. That was being at a, at a certain level. And now Scott is thriving and, and continuing to thrive. And why is that? Well, to go back to Mark Mason's point, he saw this process that I like. He saw this process of, you know, happiness is, is just this process of being your ideal self. I mean, both Oleg, Scott, both of you, whether it's becoming better, I don't know if I like the word better or 1% mm -hmm. better, but it's literally just aligning with that ideal self. And I think ideal Again, words aren't the best usage of expression, but ideal is sort of aligned with with the word thrive. Um, and you think now Scott gets to be himself and tell his stories and have his energy and shape people. And Oleg, you know, you get to go and travel the world and you get to create these type of environments. You know, I mean, these are things that you wouldn't have done if you were just sort of surviving and surviving being kind of living within one sort of one sort of um, um, reality, one sort of viewpoint. I mean, I think to thrive, you kind of, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of challenge. There's a lot of things you have to face that are the unknown. But I know both of you have done that and and you're thriving, which doesn't mean you're necessarily better or doing everything right. I think it just means that you're, you're just, it's just, it's just a lot richer, the experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Scott Mason, what are you thinking about? I'm thinking about the concept of a rich experience. 
I'm thinking about Melody's remark from 1.12 p.m. My only goal is becoming the best me that I can be and helping people see that they matter on in her mission. I'm thinking about remembering mm -hmm. what it was like to feel that I had no destiny, no gratitude. Mm -hmm. But I'm also thinking about how it felt and how it still feels to this day when I can not only write down the gratitude and see it, but when I can open my heart and really feel it mm -hmm. for something really, really small. It might be, <laughs> and here's something that's completely ridiculous, but I actually am grateful for. <laughs> Many years ago, I, uh, you know, when I was, this was a real long time ago, I was in a relationship with a different person than the person I've been, I'm married to now. And I uh, uh, briefly adopted a dog off the street and I was allergic to it. So I had to give that dog up. But my, um, my, my then mother-in-law bought a cute little dog dish. <laughs> it's a ceramic, really beautiful thing. And I, I decided to keep it because I like that dog dish so much. And I have keys and, and all sorts of things and I hold in it now. It's not a dog dish. I don't have dogs. I would love to have a dog one day. And um, and it's one of those things. It's It reminds me of her. It's a beautiful thing. It's lasted forever and it's been part of my life where I've moved. And that little dog dish is something that I'm really grateful for. And when I think about it, I'm not just looking at it and thinking about how grateful I am for it as an intellectual exercise, although that's part of it. But if I can let myself really feel it, I don't know that what I feel is happiness or joy, but I feel an overwhelming sense of being touched, of being moved, of having emotion, of a stirring inside. And if I can feel that way about something that's little, as a ceramic dog dish, imagine what I yeah. feel about being able to live the life that I do today, be in a room with you all today and talking to people like Kenneth and, and Gabriel and Melody and anyone else who might be out here or might be listening to this after the fact and what that means. And I think about that as giving me that hold on and that reminder of what's beautiful in the world when there are days when I feel like I might not want to get up or might, wanna, mm. might not be able to see the future or there might not be anything worth living for. If I'm feeling like I'm peering over the edge of the abyss, perhaps thinking about if I dive into the abyss, if I didn't have anything to be grateful for, I'd never be able to, if I were to be in the abyss or my life were worse, I wouldn't even be able to look at that dog dish and appreciate everything that it's been with me everywhere it's been in my life. And even that would be a significant loss. Resilience to me is inextricably tied not only to gratitude, but then gratitude is tied into an understanding that I have that the universe gave me something or has provided things for me to be grateful for. Mm. I think that's a beautiful segue into another topic that we wanted to explore. And that is, is there a relationship between 
destiny and resilience. I know Casey, you spoke about this um, at length last time we had that conversation on, on Tuesday, as far as what does it mean to be resilient and how does one actually know? I, I've been curious about this for quite some time and, and it really gets me, there are a couple areas that I'm genuinely interested in, I think when it comes to the resilience component. A, um, I don't even know if I fully understand what it means to be resilient for me, besides the larger concept. Like I don't, I don't, I think there are components and experiences that help me better understand my own resilience. But to a degree, I don't think I understand the full extent and maybe I'm not supposed to, I don't know. Maybe they, maybe I haven't had the experience just yet that can give me that perspective. Can I ask? Yeah. How did you all feel a year ago when the changes to our social lives mm -hmm. began to come down? About your futures, I'll, I'll, I'll be a little bit more specific. Casey, okay, so you want to go? So I'm going to answer that by resilience in the dictionary is over is is overcoming a setback is coming back and if we if all we had was pure unadulterated joy in our life we wouldn't need resilience what are you going to do come back from what you're searching for coming back from it now we know unadulterated joy forever just doesn't exist here um, there's ups and downs there's peaks and valleys you know the ekg meter on the heart it doesn't happen and so you need resilience because a i don't want to call it good and bad because that's that's our interpretation of it but you need resilience because something other than joy than unadulterated that feeling you had scott that touch it it's you are going to feel the feeling that you don't want to get out of bed and then you're going to feel the feeling that everything is great and I'm fully touched. And mm -hmm. so you're going to feel both. And so that resilience helps you come from the Valley. It helps you at 8 57 AM on a Monday say, okay, I'm going to move. Life is okay. So how you do it. So COVID in March of 2020 for me, thankfully has not been, um, a, first of all, my family's safe. We're able to stay at home. We've, we're very grateful of, of the living situation. Um, and we homeschooled our kids anyway, so we weren't great at it. We've gotten better at it. But, you know, COVID for me, I always say, has, hasn't been a huge shift for us. Why? Well, my wife had breast cancer in the beginning of 08, uh, 18. So for two years prior to COVID, <laughs> um, we ended up going to Mayo Clinic and she had surgery and, and all that. Um, luckily, we caught it early and uh, we didn't, but there were fears of death and, you know, we have children and so on. And so even if I didn't have such a drastic thing in my past before then, there, even if it was smaller, uh, I don't want to say like, what about the people say, well, God, I haven't, I haven't been adopted and my wife didn't have cancer. I'm screwed, right? Like, give me that tragic event I need. You know, you think of presidents who always build their legacy around a war, like, God, I just want a war. So I'll look cool. Right. You can, <laughs> you can have resilience, even if you don't have a big tragic thing. I hope I don't want a tragic thing 
to befell us. Um, and luckily, we caught it early and and we did, but there was a lot there. And so that was the tragic thing for me. And so when COVID came around, you know, I, I don't want to belittle it, but there was a moment of like, hey, man, 2018 and 2019, I was taken through the ringer. I, I can I can handle this. And I encourage everyone. So I encourage everyone when they when they look in their life, even if they don't have this, when something big hits them, even just say last Thursday, I got taken through the ringer. I can handle Tuesday now. Um, so as far as COVID hit me, it, it luckily I was I, I think I had that resilience from past issues, big and small, and I was able to put it in context. And I, I think I was really able to be more in the moment and realize I'm going to work from home. I'm going to spend more time with my children. I'm going to spend more time with my dog. Um, and this is going to be a pretty boring year. And that's okay. Hmm. I think for me, <clears throat> I know that when it came around <coughs> March 3rd or 8th, to be exact, one of the first uh, realizations that I had was I'm going to get through it because I've been able to get through many of the other challenges within my life. But I will also say, and this directly relates to what you were saying, Casey, it's like in knowing that I have the ability to get through whatever it is that's ahead of me, there's also for me an important factor about acknowledging the reality of what it is that's ahead of me and not diminishing that by any means. Mm -hmm. I know when I, when I got the news that we're going to be uh, shut down for next two to three weeks, I'll be honest, I believe that. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I, believe, I was like, two to three weeks, I'm good. April, all the speaking gigs, I'm still going to, you know, going to go to California, New York, all these colleges. I was super excited because just everything within that portion of my career was, I mean, it was taking off. It, it, I was in the month of April. I had, I think I had like four engagements and I was going to go travel literally all over the country and, and speak at different college campuses. And when I heard that we'll be shut down for two to three weeks, I was like, perfect. Right in time for me to get on the plane, go to New York city, then go to orange County and all these other places. And then I think when the, the news shifted or the update went from three to two weeks to a month to three months. And now it's literally been a year. I don't know. I don't even know when the whole update just stopped. It just was like, there's no point of saying it's going to be, you know, additional three or four more weeks. It's just like, this is going to take as long as it takes. And in realizing that I definitely shed a tear. I remember that. Because here is all the different opportunities that I had worked for that couldn't take place. And many of those schools, instead of postponing or rescheduled, they just straight up canceled. Mm -hmm. Because their situation was in complete jeopardy. I mean, mm -hmm. I was, I remember being in the middle of conversations amongst high schools and middle schools and some colleges where I would be invited as part of their team meetings of within zoom or um teams or google hangouts and what clicked for me was being a part of one of the conversations 
where we were teaching each other how to use that platform, how to use Zoom or how to use Google Hangouts. And that's where I realized that, holy shit, this is, this is a big transition. You know, if, yeah. if we don't know how to use this, how are we going to host an event to a school of 50,000 people? Mm-hmm. How is that even going to be feasibly possible? Um, yeah. Some of the other people, some of the other schools I was working with, they were low, low income. Place in, the, in Detroit. Not everyone has a laptop there. Talk about a moment of gratitude, something to be grateful for. You know, I'm lucky to have a MacBook Air that I'm looking at right now. Not everyone has that. Not everyone has the ability to connect to the world as easily as I do or we do, the three of us. And so I, I, I think there, is, there was an important lesson that I learned, and that's resilience, previous resilience, it taught me that I, can, I will get through this circumstance, whatever that path looks like. Um, it was not pretty at times, but I found a way to get, get through them. But then I think there was also an important component of understanding that I may have the ability, but that ability is not there to diminish the things that are actually happening. Like there's actual stress. There's actual traumatic experiences that are taking place and being fully in the moment something Casey had mentioned a couple of times throughout this really helped me see the beauty of it all and see the uh, not ultimate lesson, but I think you guys get the point, like the actual, the pure lesson of that experience, you know, instead of skipping past it, be like, Oh, this is just like any other time. Did either of you know people or experience people who you either did not, who either did not have resilience or who resilience was at a very, very different place on the spectrum of how resilient responses might look from where yours were at. Absolutely. Yeah. I I mean, I think um, I was able to observe how people chose to deal with the circumstances, how they responded. Not everyone responded in the same exact way, but for me, that was to be expected. Outside of COVID, not everyone responds in the same exact way in, in regard to anything in life. I, I might see one thing, you might see something completely, completely different, even though you and I are looking at the same exact object. <clears throat> what I have learned throughout this experience, though, is in observing other people's resilience and how they choose to respond to their circumstances. I almost have a responsibility to myself to continue to surround myself with people who operate in the same um, alignment, so to speak, and who can help me further develop my own tools as it comes to that resilience and gratitude. So I think if anything, and I mean, the two of you are a perfect example. I met the two of you during COVID. Literally during COVID. Yeah. I met Scott first uh, a week or two, a couple of weeks after we were mm-hmm. shut down. Yeah. And I met Casey halfway, three quarters of the way through it. So had I not been 
not only open, but I think looking and searching for other people of similar mindsets, I don't know if we'd be having this conversation right now. Yeah, I, I, uh, there are a number of people that I viewed this in the same way I did, which is this is horrible. Um, and, but we're going to get through it and I'm just going to do what I need to do and stay away. I get it. Uh, there were others who went extremely, who became extremely nervous about it. And I didn't want to talk to them that much. And obviously, and then we had that little thing called an election going on at the same time. And so, <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there was, we had, we had yeah. so many world changing events all packed. All. In <laughs> there was so much going on beyond that. And so they loved they their identity, what we talked about in the first half. You know, they enjoyed the drama, even though they didn't want it. I could go on. And those were people that I saw a big, a big difference. There were people in my life, like my parents, other people who were older, who were extremely nervous about this. And I understand. So granted, I didn't share that viewpoint, but they were older, higher prevalence that this could hit them in a different way. And so we wanted, I wanted to respect that. I knew they were going to be fine, but you had that. I had a friend who, um, who I didn't really know that well, but I found out she died and she was, she was my age. She was even younger mm -hmm. and just organ failure. And a friend of mine, uh, told me about it and, you know, sent me the link. Do you know who died? This was in the early days. And he, I think went off the rails, uh, throughout it all was just a nervous wreck. I think he's, he may still be. And so there's, you know, there's, there's different ways to look at it. If you look, kind of look at it broader and you look at the scale of what this happened, if we can go up a hundred thousand feet and look down on us. Okay. Mm -hmm. You look at what this has done. And what it's accelerated, and I'm not saying Zoom virtual calls are the best thing in the world, but it's accelerated so many things that I think would have taken 10, 20 years for us to, a habit for the world in general to connect with. But it's accelerated, obviously, what we see with the protests in the summer, a, a new sense of civic pride. I think a lot of the racist elements and a lot of the issues that have come out, I think a lot of people said, screw this. Like I'm coming out with something that I've suppressed uh, the world almost came into an end. And while some people are suffering, but you look at like, I think the things with Cuomo going on now and so on, wherever you say, whether it's right or wrong or cancel culture, or this is too much, or this is too little or whatever it is. I think there's a, been a real movement that people have looked in the mirror and said, I'm going to speak my mind. Mm -hmm. And I think that's beautiful. Whether I agree with the allegation or not, or it reaches a certain level, that's a totally different story. I think it's beautiful that they're coming out. I think the fact that we can work from home and that we don't need to have FaceTime and that uh, lowercase F and that we can, we, we don't necessarily need to come in the office and just be with the boss. I think all of these new companies that are coming out um, and there's a K shape recovery. I mean, definitely the stock market's going through the roof while many people are living on food stamps. So there's huge economic disparities that, that I think we need to, that we definitely need to fix here. Um, but I'm, I'm very encouraged by the fact that a lot of the, the issues, habits, I think we were going to have, they were going to take 10, 20 years to get into, um, have, have been accelerated uh, and it's been difficult. Um, so, but, but you couple that acceleration of technology and just shedding of old ways of doing business. And hopefully we layer it on a sense of awareness, a sense of compassion, 
a sense of stimulus, if you will, with people who, who need to be retrained or who need to be um, brought along with it. And if you can have that sense of ambition with compassion, I, I, I think it's a fantastic mix that I believe we can do. And if you think about it also, when it comes to this form of communication, I, so personally speaking, I remember one of the first times using Skype, 2004, 2005, and I mean, it was at very early stages of it all to a point where I don't even think I used it once after that. I mean, it was, it was at, at that particular, it was very difficult from the user's perspective to really integrate into my life because there was such a huge learning curve around it. Now, when you think about this concept of Zoom or what we're able to do right now, in a way, if you really think about this particular conversation that's taking place right now between the three of us and Melody and Kenneth and so many others, it's all due to how we chose to respond to the circumstances. Now, we could have waited. We could have waited for when in-person events are once again a thing. And then we could have then met the three of us and all the other people in a room in whatever given city. But at the same time, I think what this has allowed me to do is understand that there are other ways to achieve whatever it is that I aspire for. And I personally didn't see these things as tools. I didn't see these things as resources. I remember one of the first times I was reading an article, I think it was Mark Cuban who was saying this, how he personally dislikes the whole concepts behind meetings. And I don't want to put words into his mouth, but what I recall from that article was that he was saying something along the lines of like meetings are one of the more counterproductive things because they literally waste time because many of the meetings happen without a sense of agenda to begin with. You know, it's like me meeting you, embracing your presence. And it's, it's cool. That, that's an awesome feeling. But at the same time, like, are we really being productive driving one to two hours to the thing? And then driving one to two hours back. And that was the first realization where I had to trans transition to Zoom and host events through this platform that I started to realize like now we can actually be even more productive. Because now not only can I wear whatever it is that I want to wear to feel comfortable, but I can show up without having to drive two to three hours, actually, that wouldn't even be a thing. Me driving from here to San Francisco, that, that's a day, you know, or flying. <laughs> Same thing to New York. That's a day of its own, of activities. Yeah. Now we can do these things through this. And I think that for me, connecting to the gratitude and resilience, that was a big lesson. Mm -hmm. It was a big lesson around that whole concept of how do I respond to the circumstances? I can either sit here and wait for the world to pick back up or I can manifest similar spaces with similar intentions just through a different form of resources. That's it. You know, one of the things that's interesting that you mentioned several times in your last set of statements, Oleg, mm -hmm. was productivity. And intentionality. These concepts as virtues and as 
goals that we take for granted as aspirational hint as to an underlying belief that I believe we almost all have, unless you truly are coming from the nihilistic place that I described at the top of the hour in destiny. Because what's the point of productivity without Mm -hmm. it? What's the point of intentionality without it? Unless, like I said, you know, the other alternative would be nihilism or unless there's something else that I'm missing. I love Melody's quote, by the way, that was wonderful. The last one. Yeah. Yeah. This past year was either cruel or creative. Really great. Well, it's true. And and it also goes back to something that I think uh, Casey brought my awareness to. And it's that quote by uh, Einstein. Everything is either a mirror. You either look, I'm going to butcher this. So Casey, I'm going to need your help here, (laughs) but everything is either a miracle or it's not. Right. Something along those lines. Uh, you mean imagination? Was it uh, what's more Something imagination? Like, no, you look at it. It's you look at things oh. as either they're a miracle or they're not. That you can. I think we're saying is it wasn't Einstein, but it was this this element that uh, a miracle really is just a change in perspective. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're getting yes. at or was that another one? No, there is another one, but okay. the, the point that I'm trying to make is that there's a choice. Yeah. There's yeah. a choice. And that's what that quote that Melody brought up. Melody's yeah. statement is you can either look at it as something that's cruel or something that's creative, or it could be a combination of both. You know, it could well, be a combination of Yesterday, having to clean the garage, I mean, I was so just angry and just ticked off and I'm seeing all the waste that I've spent on stuff and my family is, they're out and about and I'm cleaning this up for a number of reasons and you know, I looked at it as disrespectful. I looked at it as here I go again. I mean, there are all these ways. And um, you can tell I'm still not over it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're happy to process it with you. Yeah. <laughs> if we were alive, we'd even come and help you out, bro. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but the perspective will shift. And, you know, it's one of, okay, I can do this. They can't. Or, hey, I got to set down some boundaries. Or I got to put a timeline in place. And and they have to come down within the next six days and claim what's theirs. Otherwise, I don't know, but, but it, you know, the, I could have a real different perspective on this. Um, and I made a choice to go with the negative, to go with the cruel and it remind me of the quote, which said, you know, anger is really injecting yourself with poison, expecting it to hurt the other person. And so here I was, Who said that? I don't know. Let's look it up. She but, whiz, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I was so just angry and disgruntled and everything yesterday at 1 PM Pacific time. And I was just shooting myself with, with this poison and, um, you know, hoping my wife who was out, out and about in the sun would, you know, it would ding her like a voodoo doll or something. And so <laughs> obviously it didn't work. Uh, and then I was grumpy and all that. And so not a big deal. I get it. It's, it's a Saturday afternoon problem of someone in San Francisco, but boy, did it just take over me? I got injected. I injected myself with my own poison mm-hmm. and it didn't feel good. And we all do it. So I definitely did not, as much as I'm talking about this, I'm, you know, practicing. I definitely did not. It wasn't a miracle. I'll tell you that much. The miracle. <laughs> The miracle was Scott writing about gratitude. Oleg, it was you. Those stories you told about. I mean, those were real miracles. 
Um, and some of them happen in an instant. Some of them happen over an afternoon or a week. But um, that's an example of me, to your point, of choosing to view it through kind of the wrong mind, the cruel mind, the painful mind, the anger mind. And, and I made a choice. And I think I knew it at the time. I'm kind of aware enough where I said, all right, man, you're injecting yourself with poison. You know it. Go ahead. Um, and so I definitely was aware of it kind of outside of my body, but I still did it. Imagine that. Mm -hmm. This was the quote I was talking about. There are only two ways to live your life. One is as though nothing is a miracle. The other as as though everything is a miracle. So doesn't that, that's incumbent upon us then. What he as, isn't saying there is choose. that. As to choose, right? Like what's the, the subtitle that would be. That should be the final actually uh, phrase to that sentence. The choice is yours. The choice is yours. And you have some work to do there. It's not a Disney movie miracle. Just poof in the sky. Hey, that look at the miracle or the mail. It came in the mail. It's literally that element of, okay, now I need to, to make that choice. And I think that's an element that most people don't want to do that work that accountability. It's so much easier for me to get angry and just blame my children and my wife and the world and everything. Oh God, it felt so good for a little while. And it was so easier as opposed to me taking the accountability for, man, you're, you're making yourself angry. So it's the same thing here. Like it's so easy just to look for miracles as opposed to create our own or fall into our own. What's the pushback behind doing the actual work? There's a ton. There's a fear. There's identity to my point about the story. Um, you know, I'm either not that person. I'm not strong enough to do the work or what do I need to do the work for? I'm the master of my own universe. There's entitlement. This should just come. It came to the YouTube guys. It came to the six-year-old kid making millions on YouTube. It came to them. Why doesn't it come to me? Why doesn't it come on my doorstep? There's the fear that this is just a ton of work. There's the fear that I can't do the work. There's a self-sabotage that if I do the work, something good may happen. There's the fear of the unknown. What if I make the choice and live a phenomenal life? Well, that's different. There's, there's all of these fears. And if you don't like the F word, blockers, issues, self-sabotage, um, things holding you back. In many ways, and I'll, I'll end here, but uh, Ryan Holiday has a book called The Ego is the Enemy. And the ego mm -hmm. that we're talking about here is this, not necessarily the Freudian ego, but but the kind of the, the matrix ego, if you will. And the ego in a good way does good things, right? It enables us to speak and have nuances and pause when someone else is speaking and not, you know, pick our nose when we're doing something. Like the ego helps us be political and connect with people. The ego also enables us to kind of live in, in the world that we are and understand. But the ego, the ego also wants to keep us safe. When you heard our parents say, don't, don't cross the street without looking both ways. That's the ego helping us. The ego kept us safe. The problem as we get, and this is why we want to unlearn things in our second half of our life in, as opposed to what we learned in the first part, is that a lot of what was beneficial about the ego, don't yell at your teacher. Don't snap back. Be compliant. Mm. Do what your teacher says. Like as a kindergartner, you know what? Do as your teacher says. You don't like, I get the personal, but like Stay in line, right? <laughs> when you're seven, but when you're 27, 37, 47, why do you want to stay in line so much? And I'm not saying be a schmuck, but what I'm saying is a lot of this fear of the unknown and the ego really kept us safe. It's not beneficial anymore. We know how to cross the street. We want now to express ourselves. And the ego, what it does is it makes us fear the unknown. So 
to Einstein's quote, the reason I won't do that work is because I subconsciously believe it'll hurt me. It'll, it'll put me in the unknown. It'll, it'll, something bad will happen. And that's where I have had to, when I meditate, I have to go, Hey ego, I get it. I get what you're trying to do. And I don't want to, the ego to me is not the enemy. It could be, that's a negative way. I view it more of, Hey ego, you were good. You kept me safe. You kept me as a good student in high school. Totally cool, but I'm good. I don't need your teachings anymore. I want to listen to a different teacher, which is that choice. Mm -hmm. I have to interject here. Because someone very special to me has just popped in the conversation, Marilyn. It is so good to see you. Marilyn is a, a powerful speaker. I've seen her um, uh, give presentations before. She's a thoughtful, smart person. She's got a huge heart. And um, it, it is just such a delight to have you join us, Marilyn. Thank you so much. And please, we have we are on various shows all the time. And, and hopefully we will see you again in them. Welcome, Marilyn. Great to meet you. Scott, you're not going to get away that easily. Bye now. <laughs> Casey just opened a can of worms that I, I think, well, here's what comes to my mind <clears throat> as you were sharing all that, Casey. I think first thing that I always thought of is there's a time and a place for everything. And I think the whole concept of ego and being protective and, and kind of listening to how the world is or needs to be. I think there was a time and a place for that. Yeah. Um, right. Without a doubt, there was a time and a place where being in line with the teacher and the classroom rules, so to speak, that was a phase because it taught me, it gave me the ability, it didn't teach me anything because I think choosing to engage with the learning, that's what brought in the lessons and the takeaways and all this other stuff. Otherwise, events just happen for the sake of happening. But the, the thing that you brought up that I found interesting is that for me, there became a chapter within my life where I started to question some of those things. In fact, so I was gifted that book, Ego is the Enemy. And I never read the book because of the title, because I don't believe ego is the enemy. And so think about that. From reading the title of a book, I chose not to commit to an action because it was so influential as far as making me believe that it's going to lead me towards one perspective and one way of thinking instead of having it be an open perspective and an open mind. So that goes to another thing, and that's how uh, impactful language truly can be. Yeah. yeah. Now, I also don't believe that everything can be communicated through the spoken or the written word. I think there are some things, some of these larger concepts that we've explored here, like destiny, purpose, I think some of them, they're a feeling. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I can't, I can't verbalize to you how I feel when I do something good for myself or for someone else. I can give you a glimpse into that, yeah. but then to it, it, to that degree, am I assuming for you to understand or am I assuming for you to relate? Cause can you truly understand without having been in the same exact body that I was doing that same exact action that I did? Mm -hmm. But I, I will and I don't, I don't know exactly where I'm going with this. These are just the, you know, this is just the nature of a conversation. Whatever <laughs> comes to mind, <laughs> we vomited out there onto other people and <clears throat> have them take whatever it is that resonates. But the thing that really stood out to me beyond everything that I just said is this concept of choice and, and really making an active decision within my life 
in order to see life through a different perspective. And the question that I'm left with, I don't know if this is something you want to pick up, Scott, or not, but what is the challenge or what has been the challenge in your life in actually accepting a different perspective, Mm -hmm. in accepting the fact that life could be different? You know, that like it can be, it, it is possible to see beyond the circumstances that I'm in right now. It is possible to be the person that I've always envisioned, but yet haven't had X, Y, and Z supposedly to get me to that thing. One of the things that keeps in my mind coming back as a theme that can build upon or limit our ability to analyze and process and then implement any of these concepts into our lives is the limitation of absolutes and the existence of spectrums. I've read, by the way, that book, Ego is the Enemy. I took a class with the Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Business Program, and there was a module that we did on negotiation. And the woman that ran that negotiation module, who, by the way, is, is a professor in negotiation at Wharton University, so I took her word very seriously, recommended that we read that book. It was, and it actually had some value, at least in the context of negotiation. It also has influenced my thinking. However, not completely. Because the, and that goes as to, in my opinion, the danger of absolutes and the importance of understanding spectrums. Recently, Barack Obama and Bruce Springsteen started a podcast. I have not listened to it, and I honestly don't have any intention to listen to it. I'm not that I have anything against it, just of all the priorities in my life, that's not the <laughs> highest one. However, in a review of it, and, and I would say that explicitly because I will make a statement that was based on what I have read of that podcast, not an actual listening to it. One of the things that they both agreed on was that egotism wasn't such a bad thing because egotism gave, for instance, Barack Obama the idea that he could run for president. And if he had no ego at all, he might not have thought he was capable of doing that or might have not have even occurred to him to strive for that. And Bruce Springsteen to say, I have a voice that, you know, is, 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 and songs that are worth sharing outside of my shower, but moving forward, I can impact the entire world and, and have a legacy that's massive beyond that. And so, and then thinking about, well, what is ego how does it play out, right? Ego, for instance, I've heard is everything from a sense of self, of a desire to control um, or suppress our interactions in the world or how we play out in the world or as a, uh, you know, a very, very small seed of narcissism or our greed that we desire to have, right? There's all of these definitions out there and depends on who you're talking to and under what circumstance that it is defined. And anyone, anytime I've heard, no, Scott, your ego is means blah, 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 blah. There's a different answer. And if the fact that everyone's saying that their answer as to what it is, is definitive indicates to me, but they all contradict each other means Mm -hmm. that there is no definitive answer. But I will say this, that I, I tend to believe that it exists on a spectrum and that it is a potentially a tool or an asset that we have in at our disposal within the range of characteristics and traits that we each have for us to move forward in whatever way that we want to move forward. 
Why do I raise all of this? Because I also see resilience as on a spectrum. Mm -hmm. Either we are resilient or we're not is to me a falsely dichotomous question. How resilient are we? How does our resilience manifest itself? And that even goes back to what we were talking earlier about destiny and its relationship to predetermination. Predetermination or determinism generally as a philosophical spectrum rather than a hard line one way or the other. When it comes to how tying back to your theme and then taking that a step further, even Oleg, and tying it back to the overall theme of this segment, is there a relationship between destiny and resilience? How does ego play into this? How does our ability to define our story? I think that Melody's point, I mean, sorry, Marilyn's point about alone we have a story, together we have a voice. All of these things exist on a spectrum and what they mean exists on a spectrum. How I process ego, how I process process that in terms of where that takes me on my journey and how I respond to things and how I and what that means as someone who self-defines as resilient is something that I very much, by the way, would argue exists on a sliding scale almost within my life. I view myself personally on the scale of resilience as extremely high. It wasn't always that way, though. Mm -hmm. I would say at different points in my life, despite external appearances and and ego-driven desires to appear in control, strong, my resilience on a scale of 1 to 10 might have been 1, 2. I didn't just melt into a heaping sack of tears, but that's because I was covering up the feelings that would have driven me there with rage, anger, and the desire to keep up an appearance. And so in answer to that, and then in answer to thinking what all of this has meant to us and how we move forward and and what we do, right? Like to what extent then all of these concepts tie into what sort of voice, Oleg, which is how I'm hearing what you were talking about. Mm -hmm. We present out into the world what we do with our voice. I also say that at least where I'm at now is trying to assess where all of these, if I were to imagine myself as surrounded by a set of scales and all of those scales tip me in one direction or another in whatever place that I'm moving towards in, in response to and in interaction with the universe that I'm in, in a variety of different ways, I'm looking at and thinking about where are all of the scales balanced? And what does that mean for this platform that I'm on that may be moving back or forth and at a certain speed and in a certain direction? Does that even begin to answer your question? I think it does. <clears throat> and I, I also think it makes me think of that everything to a degree and everything is a pretty uh, large scale or spectrum of things, but it's a matter of perspective. Even the tagline below, alone you have a story, together we have a voice. Your story may be different from my story. Your voice may be different from your voice. Your concept of together, your concept of alone may be different from my own definitions of it. So to what degree, and, and I think that also gets into another point is understanding that many things in this world, if not everything, is a matter of perspective according to the lens that you choose to look at it through. How do we create common ground? 
between these things? What is the common ground when it comes to respecting each other? I mean, to one person, respect might be earned. To another person, respect is something that is given. So that's where I um, go into as far as what you were sharing, Scott, and that is in understanding that many things in this world are a matter of a spectrum and where you are along that spectrum. But to where is that common ground? Like what is the thing that all three of us agree on or a better question within that is, is that something that we're all even striving for? Is, is that even important for us to strive towards a, an agreement amongst the three? Or is it not the agreement that we're striving for, but rather acceptance and understanding? So I, I will answer this by saying that there are not many things that are universal and everything is relative and that will cause huge heartburn for people who believe in something that's absolute whether it's you know life is better when baseball starts or whether it's that there's one god or whatever you know ketchup is better than mustard whatever it is that's an absolute for you if some guy named casey uh, is going to tell you that there are no absolutes that's going to cause you heartburn right plus we humans just want we need some certainty that's why that's what religion serves for that's what science serves for we need some certainty otherwise right. what's the point everything so for me the one absolute that i know of and i'm open to learning more but the one absolute that i've learned recently in life is that there are two types of emotions and that is love or fear and everything stems from that and an emotion is more is a feeling that is more subconscious. A feeling is more conscious. That's how I've heard it distinguished because they're used interchangeably often. But when you think about, and you may say, oh, God, Casey, really? That's the most absolute thing. But I think we can trace all of our actions and our feelings and what we're after based on whether it's love or based on whether it's fear. Now, love is not just necessarily romance. It can be really anything that is that is beneficial and that's connected with higher source, positive, resilience, right? So you think of resilience, you think of gratitude, you think of appreciation, you think of love, you think of collaboration, all of that. Fear is anger, is what I felt in the, in, in the garage. Fear is depression, fear is anxiety, fear is keeping up with the Joneses, fear is, like Scott said, I don't wanna wake up in, in the morning because I'm, I, fear is procrastination. So the reason I break this out and the reason that when, I've learned that this is an absolute that it works for me is because I then view the world through that lens. And that's where we get to a miracle being a change of perspective. And I literally, and I didn't do it yesterday in the garage, but I literally try to view things because it's all relative. I try to view it through a lens of love and collaboration. So when there is a politician who is, I don't agree with, who I think is mm -hmm. horrible and hate-filled and racist, I have to realize that this person is either emitting love or calling for love. Now, it's very difficult to love a person who is spewing out blasphemous and racist things. But the only way I can even come close to that is to realize this is a person who is so afraid and so insecure and so programmed that I that to fight him is only going to him or her is only to going to keep it going. And I need to love him 
and in my in my way show compassion or understand where it's coming from and i do that at a higher level and do it as a at a lower level the two of you come from we all have our fears but the two of you come from such collaboration and such beautiful spot that i i felt instantly uh, you know down to earth and natural with you guys from the get-go and you've only supported me so that was never really an issue but there are people out there so to the point of how do we kind of square this circle that everything's relative well what's the matter anyway uh the absolute i layer over it is really viewing as much as i can where the this person this instance or myself what is the underlying emotion? Is it fear or is it love? And then based on that, that helps me inform how I react and perceive it. Mm. I'm not saying I do it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I do it 1% of the time. I, but I'm, I'm aware enough now where I go, oh God, Casey, you're coming at this from insecurity. You're coming at this from fear. You're coming at this from procrastination. You're coming at this from lack. Um, all right, man, you know what's going to happen. You're going to view this in a very lack-filled, fear-filled way. Garage was a perfect example of that. Perfect. My wife disrespects <laughs> me, my kids. I mean, it was such an Al Bundy, married with children, for those who know that sitcom moment of just no one appreciates me, woe is me, the troubles I've seen, you know, unappreciated dad, blah, blah, blah. They're going to give me something that I'm good with organizing. Screw them. I mean, it was all, you know, so... Um, instead, yeah. So anyway, that that's I, that's the only absolute that I've been able to come up with that I'm able to layer on day to day that makes sense to me in this in this sort of relative world. Do you believe in those as absolutes, even above and beyond the idea that all human beings have an underlying level of dignity and worth? So. Do you believe that that's an absolute? I do, but I believe that. So I believe the fear and love absolute is at the God level, is at the nature level. So I either have a choice whether I'm going to think in the way, let's just say it, whether I'm going to think in the way, not the not the dictatorial God that we see in the Bible, old and new, but rather the God of of um, that I believe in, that 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 is is me. Um, when I look at equality. The dignity, uh, I do. I personally do believe that is true because I, I feel that comes from love. But that's within the matrix. And here's what I mean by that: if you look at the different systems that we have, you know, how does Jeffersonian we're all created equally align with capitalism? It it doesn't, because in capitalism, the the best. The best survive, the best make the money. The, how how does it work that if we're all created equally, the, that the what is it the the um made the best survive? I'm I'm butchering it, but like there are isms we have in our matrix in this reality, and this is the beauty of humans that this cognitive dissonance that we can get along and understand things that are that are totally mutually exclusive, and we move on with our life. Um, but like, how does that happen? So I believe everyone has dignity. I believe we're all equal, uh, because that for me comes from love, but that is a belief I have within the game we're playing within the row, row, row your boat. Life is but a dream within the dream, within the matrix, however you want to look at it. For me, the absolute of that, it's all fear and love comes from, from a different source from that other dimension. I want to be clear though. I never said anything about we're all equal. I said that we all have a baseline level of worth and dignity. 
I be- I believe so, but that's not up to me. Like I cannot I believe that you have worthy worthiness, Scott, but it doesn't matter what I think. It matters what you think about yourself. Mm-hmm. If and, that's I, an- and that's what I've struggled with is so uh, everyone believes in me. Casey, you're the greatest. I'm the one that has struggled with myself. Well, it could be, though, that we actually all do have a baseline level of worth and dignity, it- but that the lens through which we choose to view that that's right right that, that it's possible entirely that whatever lens we choose to view, but some of those lenses are flat out wrong mm-hmm. yeah no i agree and that's when we all when i'm viewing it from love then that is i'm tapping into this this is what bob marley talked about john lennon were one i'm tapping into that universal connectedness of worth and love mm-hmm. the problem i have is i'm usually most of us aren't tapped into it well, or one could simply say that, for instance, if we're if the only absolutes are the existence of concepts like love and fear, that the idea that we are all worth, that we all have a baseline level of worth is rooted, as you just suggested, in the concept, in a lens through which we choose to view each other as one of love. But right. no one says, at least that I'm not here, at least that I'm hearing, that fear is inherently a worse place to come from qualitatively than love. It, it could, in fact, in some, some might argue that it is the superior place to come from. And then if, if that's the case, and if we're willing to accept that proposition, because you didn't say the only, right. You didn't say that there was a, that there was a hierarchy between the two, that love was somehow better and that fear was somehow worse. You so said that those are the two ultimate lenses through which we view the world. No, I disagree. I cannot agree. I cannot agree. I disagree with the fact that that fear is. Let me put it this way: I don't want fear. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying I don't want pressure. I'm not saying I don't want motivation. But I don't want fear. Fear. You don't fear. want it, but that doesn't mean that it's not a, a, that that it's somehow merely because any individual wants it or not means that it's somehow higher place or lower on any sort of uh, qualitative hierarchy. So David R. Hawkins, the MD and psychiatrist, actually created that spectrum. And at the bottom, mm-hmm. and it's a spectrum of sort of um, enlightenment and and healing. At the top is love and below it appreciation. And that's where you find the Gandhis and Mother Teresa's and God and all of that. Down at the bottom are the fear-based ones, which are shame and guilt and anger and hate and depression. And they literally are on the opposite end of the spectrum of where where I think most humans want to be, which is enlightenment, awakeness, love, um, collaboration. And so maybe we have different definitions of fear. So we want to deal there. And I don't want to put words in your mouth or, or argue about the semantics. So maybe it is. There are definitely elements of something that's fearful that I think can drive us and lead to productive things. But for me, I don't, I don't want fear in my life. I don't want shame. I don't want guilt. I don't want hate. I don't want that. Who is mm-hmm. who are any of us to say though that other people might not feel that way? And the reason why I'm sensitive to that mm-hmm. is because, again, sort of going back to the general theme I, I was talking about earlier, spectrum. Humans exist on the spectrum of of experience. Some people may say, "I want to have that fear because I find power and engagement and excitement." That's mm-hmm. sort of like like earlier when people would say to me, I, "I like shame because that's a place that I feel comfort or that for whatever gives me something that I, Scott Mason, or you, Casey Berman, or Oleg yeah. Lohid, might not be able to see." That sort of goes back to my own thing I said earlier. 
about myself. People mm-hmm. always say, don't you want to be happy? No, stop telling me I want to be happy. Stop telling me that that's some baseline need that I have. That's your perspective <laughs> yeah. about what I should want or what I'm wanting or what is in my, my need set at all. And Scott, you asked, who, who am I to tell someone to want to be? I am not. That's not me. Mm-hmm. I am not here to tell them that they should. Should is a word that I want to erase from my vocabulary. And I have with my children because I kept telling them should, should, should. And I, I really don't say the SH word any longer. For me <laughs> and for others, I will say that if you are living in shame and guilt, I feel that when we go to the Hinduism, the, I mean, there, there's a reason that from Hinduism, which is very inspiring, is this idea of the illusion that we're in. And I feel that karma, the real definition of karma is not, ha, 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 that guy got his karma and his revenge. We've, we've, we've tweaked it. Karma is literally working through these disconnects that we have, and we keep coming back. The idea of be, behind Hinduism and, and Buddhism in many ways, and I think this was even Jesus, so why he felt no pain as he was sacrificed on, as he was crucified, is the literally fact that he was not coming back. The reason we're reincarnated by in the Hinduism belief is we have more to work through. And the idea that I've realized recently is like, I don't want to like, why do we want to be here in a world of fear, shame and guilt? And that person who says I thrive on shame and I thrive on guilt, I have to admit, I'm not sure I believe that person. But all the power, if that person wants to come back and continue to work through it. Who am I to say? But my point is on the spectrum of something from fearful to love, I am, as you know, from my example yesterday with the garage, I am so immersed in fear and anger and guilt, like just like everyone else. I am trying to take Oleg's incremental steps to (coughs) move on that spectrum to where it's more of awareness. It's more of appreciation. It's more of gratitude. It's more of being neutral, which sounds so boring which Madison Avenue cannot say, Hey, here, buy a car. It'll make it neutral. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. <laughs> but when true. I'm, and when I'm neutral, when my mind is empty, how boring is that? But also how aligned do I feel? Mm-hmm. Casey, I love your, uh, well, many things, but like, Scott thinks I'm so boring. Scott's <laughs> like, who is this guy? No. No. And, uh, yeah. you know, I love it. I your love sense, it. I'm like to you, like Gabriel awesome. Leal is to me. I just yeah. like to disagree. <laughs> I love it. No, I love it. Your, no, no, like your, I interrupted you. Your sense of humor is awesome. Like how you would just throw in like the F word, but you know, it's not that F word or like right. SH word, but right. it's not that SH word. Like, right. I don't know how you train yourself or like wh- wherever that comes from. But to me, like that's, that's fascinating. And now I would thank you. Ollie. Thank you very much. I will say also that, you know, Scott, I it may be that you, Scott, have a level of strength that I don't have, which is when fear, anxiety, when that happens, yeah, you deal with it. I really think, and I'm a strong person and I'm mm-hmm. being able to get through things, but I really think that part of it as a people pleaser in my life, I think professionally, when when you know what hit the fan, there was an element of like, oh, this is my fault. Okay, mm-hmm. someone's going to get mad at me. And I don't know, it came, my parents were loving and stuff. I just was a people, there literally may be a level, it's not even resilience. There may be literally, you have a different viewpoint on when it hits the fan that I do. And Mm -hmm. I just, so maybe my need to be on that end of the spectrum is where I'm just more, I don't want to say comfortable because I'm trying to push my comfort zone, but it's where it's just certain something that, that I need, but, but being immersed in fear, I don't watch horror movies, being immersed in the fear and the shame and the guilt. I've had a lot of that in life. And I just um 
I don't, if, if I search for it and try and make it my passion to avoid anger, then I'm only going to get more of it. The point I, I realize is the question of Buddhism literally is not what am I experiencing and how can I experience something else? But it's more of what am I experiencing? Yeah. Question mark. It's full stop. And I did that yesterday at 7 p.m. Like, what am I experiencing? I'm experiencing anger at my family. I'm experiencing disrespect. And I just sat with it. I just sat with it. I didn't try to change it. I just sat with it. But I think I think there's a level, and it might be due to due to how we were raised, Scott, where I think when it hits the fan, you're probably able to deal with it better than I am. I don't know that I would want to say better or worse. I, I would say that I did grow up in an environment where there was a lot of finger pointing and blame. Yeah. I did, um, you know, and, and I did, I personally appreciate being <laughs> blamed for things. Sometimes I actually didn't care. You know, my dad, I grew up on, when I first moved to Kansas, after my father retired, or when my father was still in the Air Force, I think we moved onto an Air Force base. And part of it was still like, okay, but there was a whole part of it that was abandoned. And we were not supposed to go to the abandoned part. So, of course, I went there of course one you did. day. And it was awesome. All of these empty sort of like post-apocalyptic houses. And the park looked like, you know, maybe there were a few kids that played in it. But, uh, you know, they could easily have been zombies or or human eating, whatever. And so I was gone half the day and my dad didn't know where the heck I was. And when I came back, he spanked me for being, I, he said, where were you? I said, you know, I was at blah, 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 this part of the air force base. And I mean, I got my ass kicked. I didn't care. That was fine. I was blamed. I was in trouble. I got right. Like I, I deserved it. I disobeyed. I shouldn't have been there. Other times I was blamed for things I didn't do. And that thing pissed you know ticked me off or there was there have been times in which there people have attempted to make me feel ashamed of who or what i am for a whole variety of other reasons that were invidious um you know my racial background my intellectual ability my sexual orientation you know the way i the way i look or the way i talk or the way I, any a number of these things and the reason why i raise all of these and I think that Melody had a good point. People saying you should be this, you should be that. Embedded in that is judgment. It is sort of an SH word. And to me, thinking about that, it's far worse of a SH word than the other SH word we're really not allowed to say. But yeah. I do all the time when the cameras are off. And so, <laughs> so yeah, I, I think that, but some of that comes from, and, and perhaps talking about how we were raised, it can frame and impact the lens through which we deal with things. I have chosen to, Casey, uh, respond to things like you should or or, or these, these sort of finger pointing blame sort of things to be very defiant and very assertive in my response to them and reject them as part of my emotional response systems. And I don't know that that's better or worse. I could be confident and defiant and, and you know, responding the way I am right off a cliff and, yeah. and, and into a dangerous place. So, you know, I, I do want to be clear about that. And I could also be not experiencing or choosing to experience things uh, that I am where I'm really missing out on amazing things that you're mm -hmm. experiencing that I'm not. 
I will say, though, that some of that, it's interesting that you raise that because some of what you're talking about puts you in a place where you're viewing how you, your own journey, your quote unquote destiny or absence thereof, or your perception of yourself as an actor or agent in the universe in a certain way in response to that. Also, as I'm listening, I'm thinking, well, actually that is, and I hadn't really thought about this before. That is as every bit as much framing the lens through which I view dominant. I have an issue with the ab- what I view as a moral and ethical absolute that all humans are worthy of a baseline level of dignity, having been someone who was repeatedly viewed as belonging to classes of people that did not deserve that dignity. And in addition, having been viewed as personally someone who did not have that level of dignity. And so to me, then I would argue again, spectrum where we sit on the spectrum of the experiences of childhoods that yeah. we might have. And then the, the different emotional, intellectual, and dispositional makeups that you and I might have, where we lay on all of those spectrums, then might lead to different outcomes as to what we, per, what we view as the dominant baseline lens through which we view the universe. I, so... I fully agree with you 100%. And if there's one thing that I can do to help people understand that they are worthy of this dignity, that they have this dignity, it's not to write it in a a dock on old parchment. It's not to force it down their throats, but it's literally to help them see what's blocking them from it. And so that idea for me is is where the fear comes in. I want them to face the darkness. Eckhart Tolle talks about it. Carl Jung talked about the shadows who worked with worked with Freud. It's really this idea. So where Melody says, I believe fear is being outside your comfort zone. Fear is the threshold of growth. I think the overcoming of the fear brings you the confidence to go to your comfort zone. The overcoming of your fear realized growth. Because there are so many people out there who have lived in without direction they've lived in poor areas they eat unhealthily they whatever it is we know who they are in the world they've been oppressed or they haven't been oppressed on paper but they had a they've been oppressed in their family or whatever and they have that they they don't feel worthy they don't feel that inner dignity and so if there's one thing that i can do is to let them know what shine a light on what's blocking it is it that you just are a people pleaser and that you don't think you're worthy until you get something external? Is it that you've just been that that people have said this? I mean, is it that you're literally living the beliefs of mm-hmm. other people? You're not living your own beliefs. I mean, the both of you and I mean, look at the belief as adopted children that you could have taken on and mm-hmm. you had a miracle. You shifted your perspective. So I firmly believe that dignity is in all of us, but it's only there because we're, we're all in this together. We're all, we're different geysers again, but it's the mm-hmm. same water running, you know, running underneath. And so if there's one thing that I want to do is to really, I'm not saying, Hey, it's up to you to find your dignity, but I am saying, I can't have you connect with the geyser water yeah. of dignity. You need to connect with it, but I want to tell you the way to connect with it is there's probably a blocker, a fear of some kind getting in the way. Let's unpack that fear so you can shine a light on it and then have you go, Oh my God, this is what's getting in the way 
-hmm. of me connecting with my dignity is the fact that I want to make my parents proud. The fact that I have a belief system that blank, blank, and blank. Okay, fear. And this is where the ego of the enemy, right? Like, okay, fear. You kept me. I was fearful because I didn't want to get spanked by my dad back in the day. My dad's not here anymore. I don't need this fear anymore to keep me safe, ironically. I'm moving on to dignity. I will push back respectfully mm-hmm. because you know I have tremendous, almost awe-inspiring respect for your intellect, Casey, as well as yours, Oleg. And and so this this is a this is this triggers my fear <laughs> pushing back against you all. But before that, I I do want to thank there is another Facebook user who I can't see your name, at least in my comments. So anyway, oh, what a wonderful that Mm is Nicole. How wonderful to hear from you. Thank you so much for typing that. So in any event, we're that is an argument that I will argue is being made from a place of privilege because on some level we live in a culture where that baseline level of dignity exists. If we were living, if we were each living in a, um, in, as slaves in the Numidian salt mines in the Roman Empire, would we really simply be able to say, what are the blockers keeping you from having your dignity? Well, no, because that wasn't... Oh. We, well, that because was, it would be because the baseline level of dignity in the external world that we were operating in mm-hmm. would not have been there to support Correct. that. Correct. So then I would argue as a pushback there, then that the level of the baseline level of human dignity as the underlying absolute, right? To me, that's an argument for exactly what I'm saying, that that level of a baseline level of human dignity is an absolute value that, that, um, that in order for any of the the self-actualization or the destiny fulfillment exercises that we might engage in to exist, or even the lens, the examination of the lens at which we're operating, fear or love. If you're, if you're living in the salt mines of Numidia in ancient Rome, is love a lens through which you seriously have any possibility of engaging in the world? It, it's certainly privilege now. I have the internet. I've got all these books. I've got the two of you to talk to. Like, it is a huge privilege, and I want to take advantage of this privilege. No, if I was in the salt mine somewhere, if I was somewhere even nowadays in a slum somewhere where this sort of information, this water that we lived in, I wasn't able to see beyond it, I don't have that opportunity. I don't have that privilege. But the fact that I, Casey Berman, and all of us here, and everyone who has an internet connection or even a mobile phone can listen to this nowadays. That's what's so beautiful about the internet. That's what's so beautiful about us. Because back in the day, you had St. Augustine, you had Cicero, you had, um, you know, Tolstoy writing up, but who could read back then? I mean, think about it. There's yeah. no audio, there's no radio, people can't read. How do you share these ideas? Now we have this ability to share it. I mean, it is such a privilege that so many people have that I don't want to squander this privilege. We need to share this information. And it's really not that difficult, but literally, I want everyone to challenge a status quo. I want everyone to look at their life and say, the emperor has no clothes here. What am I doing? Now, it doesn't happen that you just leave your dead-end job on day one, but boy, it can. I mean, they're, like college, my children, we homeschool. My kids don't want to go to college, and I fought that for so long. I'll tell you, the whole 
education industrial complex of college is going to fall down. And I think it's a beautiful thing, except for high school, you know, college administrators. It's a beautiful thing. Now that's fearful for so many people, but so yes, it's a privilege. And the people, unfortunately, in those salt mines didn't have this opportunity because they swam in water that really only told them one thing. We're swimming in water nowadays. That's telling us so many things. And I just really want so many people, whether they're making a million dollars or they're making minimum wage to really tap into that energy that, that we all can and, um, and, and take those small incremental actions. If, as we mentioned earlier, they want to become their ideal self. If they don't. And I'll also add on to what all of you just said. <clears throat> I don't think there's anything wrong with having privilege. Um, to be completely honest with you, right. I think you're, I, I think I, I think having this ability, you know, you brought up the example, Scott. What does that dignity and everything look like back then? Well, a, there's no way of knowing, and b, there's also no way of knowing what the people do within it. And here's why: when I read um, *Man's Search for Meaning* by Viktor Frankl, and he was describing his circumstances of being in the concentration camps and still finding ways mm. to insert different elements of humor to brighten someone else's day and to give them purpose for living that day and getting to the next minute, the next hour, the next moment. That in a way is for me, an example of here's an individual that during quote unquote, the darkest moment of his life still found a, found a way to believe in something other than the circumstances presented himself with. So that for me not only illustrates the choice that he was able to make, but quote unquote, the privilege of exercising that choice. And in thinking, well, I I don't know, I'm not putting myself in him because I have no idea what he was thinking. I can only assume that spreading such message of hope and inspiration, my voice is cracking. So this is definitely a sign for the next break here, but spreading that message of hope and inspiration that was put in his life in jeopardy. I mean, yeah. really think about that. Anyone who was able to see who is the source that is giving these people life is probably not going to live much longer once mm-hmm. that was found out. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there is, it's interesting how we even got down this rabbit hole of absolutes and spectrum. I think there's tremendous value in it. For me personally, the more that I think about it, and as I heard all of your perspectives around dignity and so forth and acceptance and respect and mutual understanding and all these other things, I still fall back to the concept that it's all a matter of perspective to a degree. And it's a matter of the perspective that the person is able to see it through. You know, so like in my case, it's all based on my perspective, which is based on my previous experiences. And I can only say what dignity looks like based on my previous experiences. I can only say what love looks like based on my previous experiences. Yeah. And fear and all these other things. So I, I think it's, I'm glad that we went down that road because it, it expanded my perspective, but it also just put me in that understanding that it's still a matter of the individual perspective because how you see the world is going to be different from how I see the world. And that's okay. And and that's okay. Where I would challenge you, Oleg, and all of us mm-hmm. is to 
not just view it based on your past experiences. That's the story. That's the identity. And that's the shining the light because my home was burglarized when I was around eight, nine years old. And I have told that story to this day. And I check locks and security conscious. And it's gone broader even to into a lack consciousness. I think subconsciously there's a there's a, a feeling I have inside of myself that that something's gonna be taken from me. I don't want to feel that way anymore. <laughs> like that, that's not a good feeling. That's a lack-based feeling. That's a fear-based feeling. Like I, that just doesn't work for me anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have viewed the world in that way. And so one thing, it makes total sense that we view that we view something through our past. What I'm trying to do is is see the areas that that I have viewed through past lenses, through stories in the past, the lens now, and then ask myself, is this beneficial? Does this help? Am I missing something? Mm-hmm. And most often I am missing something. I mean, the anger in the garage was viewing through disrespect and through mm-hmm. past stories. Mm-hmm. It just didn't help me at all. So um I agree with you. That's how we view it. I'm I'm trying, and it's a lifelong process. I'm trying to change that and either view it through a new lens or view it neutrally. Mm-hmm. And with that said, so I want us, if we're all open to it, take a break, <coughs> come back for one last one. Okay. Um, that I want to kind of tie this all together around this concept of what is it that we're actually grateful for. But beyond, beyond the list of names, beyond beyond a list of things, but more so just from a larger perspective, like why do some of these things, quote unquote, deserve, I know, Scott, you have a strong, uh, (laughs) strong story story behind the word deserve, but really like what is the expectation behind these things and, and who creates it and why is that important and why is it important to dissect it even more? Um, So that's one thing I want to go ahead, Scott. Yes. Before we go on our break, I just want to, if I may, because we all are associated with this organization to do a quick ask anyone watching or listening at this point, www.overcome.odds. I'm sorry, overcoming odds.today, overcoming odds.today facilitates these sorts of conversations. And it is all, it's an incredible, we're doing this work. We're looking to move it out on the, to the, you know, to the, to the world. And we're always looking for, uh, you know, opportunities if you want to share in this to um, contribute to our nonprofit. Yeah. Fantastic organization. I'm honored to be a part of. Mm. I'm not going to add anything more to that. I think that was well said. So let's take a 10 minute break and then we'll come back.
All right, we're back. <laughs> As if three hours has not been long enough to spend around the dinner table, but. <laughs> We've only just begun. <laughs> yes, we truly have. No, but I, I'm, I'm grateful that we've had um, this conversation. There's definitely a lot to unpack between what we just covered, uh, between just this whole concept of destiny, resilience, gratitude, everything that we ended the last um, session with. And I kind of just wanted to um, not necessarily sum it all up because I, I don't think this next segment it would do it justice in trying to sum, sum up the whole conversation that we've had. Um, we have had, but more so explore this concept of being resilient. And I think this might be the question that you posed, Scott, as far as what do we strive to be resilient for? <laughs> Everyone in the entire history of humanity that is directed at. And there better be just one answer, Casey. Just one. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> No, but that I do think that um, it brings up a really good point. So I'll, I'll start it off. What is it that I strive to be resilient for? I think <laughs> I, I had to make a difference there. Um, personally speaking, it's to <clears throat> it's to continue to reassure myself that I have the ability to do so when it comes to whatever the hardship and adversity comes. But then there, there's also a question within that, that as I was thinking about it, and that is at what point does knowing what you know become enough? Like why is there, what more can I strive for to help myself better understand that I have what it takes to get through X, Y, and Z, and that I have the, the courage, the strength, and all these other things that make up resilience? You know, at what, what point is it enough and why, I guess the question within that question is, does striving imply that it's not enough? You know, what is, and that maybe goes to a larger picture as far as the difference between human being and human doing. Why do many of us strive for more in life? Why is what we're experiencing right now not enough or not does not feel like it's enough? <clears throat> I think culture plays a big role. Um, culture is speaking, living here in the United States, in my opinion and my based on my perspective, it's been a challenge. I, I don't know how the two of you do it or anyone else is tuning in right now regarding the whole concept of embracing the now and living in the now. I mean, I embrace the now and I live in the now, but glimpse, like seconds, maybe minutes of the day. Everything else is based either on resolving the past or planning for the future. And I think part of that has to do with the fact of how the culture surrounding me is built. There is no time to sit down and reflect. Only fill in the blank to do that. It's just grow, 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 accomplish, conquer, dominate, overcome. <laughs> that was going to be one, one of my other questions to the two of you. Uh, I think, Casey, you were the one that brought that up. You know, overcoming fear. What does overcoming mean to you? 
Is that to hit an endpoint, reach a final destination, or is it more of a process? Because I think there's a big difference between the mm -hmm. two. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you asked Casey that and not me. <laughs> Casey, please answer. <laughs> Do you want to take what's on the screen, Scott? What do we strive to be resilient for? I, I if you answer that one, I'll do anything. <laughs> All right, Oleg. The question again: What do you strive to be resilient for? Yeah. So, I are you hearing an echo, or is that just me? I think okay. it's just you. Okay, good. So, so for me, I strive to um, heal. And what did I, that sounds weird, right? What do I mean by that? But there's when I'm when I'm Alan Watts has this quote that you want to have faith in life and having faith in life is trust. And when you swim, you don't grab the water. The more you grab the water and try to control it, you're going to sink. Um, you relax in the water and then you float and you let it happen. The, the air in your body floats you. And so. Where I'm, if resilience is overcoming challenges, if it's moving forward despite being knocked down, if it's moving forward, maybe not even overcoming your fears, but despite the fear, then I am doing that for the sole or, or a main reason, if not the sole reason, um, because I have faith. And so the faith, the trust, is something that helps me be resilient. So then why am I resilient? What is ultimately the goal of this? Again, it, there's, there is no goal. And I know that doesn't sound sexy or glamorous or what I can be sold to, but it's a process. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, the more I do this process, just like anything, the more practice I do, the better I get at. And what am I getting better at? I'm getting better at faith and confidence and alignment and connection. When I'm not good at it, I get angry in the garage. And, <laughs> and that just ruined my day. Or I get nervous at a presentation. Or I believe someone else's beliefs. Or like I, it, it's very clear when I'm not trustworthy, when I'm not having faith. So what do I strive to be resilient for? I am striving to overcome these challenges, these fears to move forward despite Right? in order for me to be my ideal self, in order for me to be connected, to be aligned. And on a day-to-day -day basis, all this woo-woo high-level talk, what that really means is I, I, I can do things. I don't procrastinate. Mm -hmm. um, I, I am aware of my ego. I am Casey Berman Label, and I'm also aware that I'm really nothing. The word person comes from the Greek persona, and persona was the mask that the Greek actors put on stage. I had this megaphone shaped mouth when they put on their acts. Literally, if you say you're a real person, as Alan Watts says in one of his lectures, you are an authentic fake. You're an authentic mask, right? And so for me, what is my label? Who am I? Father, dad, Casey, Jewish kid, San Francisco, tech market. Well, I don't even know. Like, what am I trying to be? And so part of what I'm being resilient for is to be really comfortable with the uncomfortable, comfortable with 
just being aligned and connected and literally at 11.57 a.m. on a Tuesday when a big challenge, a small challenge, a mundane challenge or something I am presented with, I am literally able to not only do well at it, but just to, to move forward. I mean, that's it. So boring, not glamorous, not high level what I just answered. But for me, it's the mundane on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday when no one's watching, when I can really be crippled and I don't want to be crippled anymore. What does overcoming mean to you? Overcoming means to me that I don't fear it anymore, that I don't really have to deal with it anymore. Or if it comes up, I'm able to deal with it. So if you think about my to-do list right now that I have to get done, I have not really been able to overcome the fear that it is so much work, that it's going to take me hours to get through this. I have a big fear of paperwork, DMV. 401k, scan something, fax something. I literally get this preconceived notion that if it's something with the DMV, it's going to take 83 days. When, believe it or not, you know, they have, they're not the best, but they've made things online. They've optimized it. They've done stuff. Like printing a piece of paper out, scanning it, (laughs) uh, printing it, signing it, scanning it. I hate it. I did it yesterday. It took four minutes. (laughs) But But you see what I mean? Like... And it's not a sexy challenge, but like I literally spent seven days putting this off. Guess what? I missed the deadline. I had to pay a $29 fee. Think about that. Like, what am I doing? All I had to do was print it up and scan it. And I just wanted nothing to do with paper. So you make that bigger and you're like, well, going to the gym or starting my own business or asking for a raise or taking that new training program. I mean, something bigger than just scanning that won't be $29 in seven days of your mm-hmm. life. That'll be $29 million and seven, 70 years of your life. It's that type of alignment that I want to be resilient for so that I can, on the one hand, just scan that thing and not worry about it, but then also do, do bigger things. Scott, what comes to your mind? I read an article yesterday about deathbed regrets. This article was examining the claim, and apparently there's one book that a nurse or someone who worked in a hospice or a similar sort of profession uh, wrote that was the origin of a lot of the data that we have out about this. This article concerned you know, the question, what do people regret most right before they die? And and the woman who wrote the the preeminent book on this, basically she um, talked to people. We don't know to what extent she was consistent about it. We don't know the sample size. We don't know whether she was capturing the data on the spot or writing down what she remembered later. There were a whole bunch of things, but she worked in the palliative care field. And so a lot of what she recorded in her book about this were regrets like, I wish I'd spent more time with my family. I didn't, I regretted working so much. I regretted all of these other things. And of course, these regrets have moved into tropes, have actually become memes that have spread throughout our culture. And the article was discussing to the extent to which these have spread so far, not because of their accuracy. They really haven't been questioned. There hasn't been any systematic approach to the recording of deathbed regrets or not since then, at least on anything approaching a large scale. And it found it interesting that the uh, that the deathbed regret 
statements tended to coincide so tightly with Hollywood movie morals and folk wisdoms and the things actually that keep people from economic advancement. And it analog, and I don't know, that doesn't necessarily mean that these deathbed regrets or things that they didn't regret weren't true. But it was then examining why perhaps these should be viewed with suspicion as having any real meaning for those of us who are not on our deathbeds. And the argument that this article made was that if you know that you're about to die, if you're in palliative care, you don't, the things that we do day to day that are the things that they tended to regret a lot, like working really hard, aspiring for more money are Mm -hmm. all things that we do because we have hope for the future that extends beyond just a few moments. Whereas if you're in palliative care on your deathbed, you don't have that hope for, you know, full well that you're about to die. So you're not of course going to engage in things or view, see the value in things that are at least as you know, the state that you're in, in that moment that are putting you in a situation where you can better a position that you will never be in. And so the argument then is that people that are on their deathbed have been removed from the day-to-day struggles of life, or they have been removed from a mental state that any of us that are actually not in palliative care or on our deathbeds would ever be in. And so the ability of us to extract real meaning from those as applied to our own lives until we hit that stage really is questionable. Went as to then a deeper question. What we are looking for, what are actions such as trying to make money, such as overcoming odds, such as dealing with our fears, those are predicated on hope. Mm-hmm. As we discussed, Oleg, in a prior one of our squirrel podcasts, hope is only of questionable virtue. It's not clear that the Greeks, for instance, when they told the story of Pandora's box and all the evils in the world escaped, but she shut the door and kept hope inside the the jar. It's not clear that that was because the Greeks viewed hope as a curse because it enabled us to believe in a lie or that they believed it was a good thing that helped us move from day to day. I though irrespective of whether it is a good thing or a bad thing, have hope. And what gives me hope is that belief that I, Scott Mason, do have a destiny. It may not be what I want it to be. It may be less significant than I fantasize. It may have already passed, or it may not be something that anyone can understand till after I'm gone. But as long as I believe I have that destiny, then I am resilient because that destiny is what gives me hope and hope for the future that there is anything to live for, that there's anything when I'm faced with something awful to bounce back to, above and beyond. 
That is why I strive to be resilient. Wow. Wow. I'm just thinking of my own um, experiences. It, you know, relates to hope and, and what that looks like and why is it that I hope for certain things or choose to have an optimistic um, view of the future. <clears throat> I think for me, what it takes me back to were some of those early circumstances um, that I experienced at the beginning of my life. And I, one of the biggest reasons and tools for why I was able to work through whatever the challenges were was I think having that sense of hope, having a, a sense of uh, enthusiasm that things can be better than they currently are. And I don't know, maybe that in a way, I don't want to speak for everyone, but maybe that in a way is um, kind of at the core of what it means to be a human and, and what it means to be a part of humanity is have that sense of hope and understanding that there is a future, um, that there is a possibility for other generations to experience um, whatever it is that they choose to experience and how they get brought up into the world. I don't, I don't think there's any way of knowing or predicting. I think everyone gets their own set of cards, so to speak. But yeah, that, that really, um, that spoke to me uh, when you were sharing that Scott and made me think of my own, my own relationship with hope and how even in the darkest moments I try and uh, maintain it to the best of my ability, I think for me, like tapping into some of the creative sources, uh, poetry and whatever else that helps me uh, reignite that hope whenever it's gone. And in a way, I think hope, the more that I think about it, it's probably, uh, I don't know about critical, but it's definitely a component of being resilient and staying resilient. If, if you think about hope, there's to, to Scott's point about whether it's good or bad, whether it is, I think there's an expectation that something will happen, right? You hope something will happen and that's kind of an expectation of it. And expectations can be, can be painful because a lot of the pain that we have in life is that disconnect between what we expected and, and what happened. That's why you have so many people disappointed on Christmas morning and, and and in life in general, and a lot of people who are middle-aged saying, this is not what I expected my life to be like. So that's tough. That's a tough way to view hope. And I think that's what Scott's getting at by it can be, it, it can be a, a, a difficult thing to swallow. The area that I like hope and I am picking up on what Scott's talking about, and I thought it was fascinating, just so powerful what you just said, was the point of hope as trust. And if I just trust that things are good now, not just in the future, because really the future doesn't exist when you think about it, except it's a concept in our mind. Mm -hmm. The only thing that that exists is right now. And of course, we think about future, we think about the past, but that's in our minds. So, and you mentioned being in the moment just in, in blips during the day, like I'm the same mm -hmm. way. I can talk about all this, but emotionally it's so small amount of time that I'm actually in the alignment that I want to be in. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm just that's what I'm working on. That's my that's part of my life purpose, I guess, which I won't share with anyone. It's just me by myself trying to get connected. 
But I think that if you view hope as sort of trust, I think that enables me to take this idea of hope and not necessarily have it in the realm of the future, which the Disney movies, like Scott, you mentioned, want us to have it in. But rather, it helps me bring it back with gratitude to now, to Uh the moment. And there's a hope, there's a trust that fill in the blank. Things are great. Everything's going to be okay. Or that I'm good. I'm worthy. Um, That there's a hope a trust that I will have that feeling that Scott has when he looks at the memento dog dish and just feels that, that touch. And really what you're feeling is a connection. You're, you're, you're feeling that, that relationship, you're feeling collaboration, you're feeling cooperation, you're feeling the love that, that, that person who gave you that gift many years ago felt toward you because they obviously were thinking about you. Um, So for me, I pick, I agree hundred percent with Scott around hope. And if I can define hope as trust and faith, if even I haven't seen it in the past, I know it will happen. That only, not only lets me build a better future in that sense, but really more importantly, it helps me connect with this moment. And what does that moment mean right now? It means me really not thinking about anything else, but just kind of connecting with the two of you and freeing myself of thoughts and just appreciating what I'm doing right now, literally for me, connecting to the moment and having trust is kind of shutting off my mind and just um, not thinking other thoughts than what I need to right now. And what is it that you ultimately trust? I think I ultimately trust. It's a great question. I think I, for me, I've always just said, I ultimately trust that everything is all right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't mean to say all right, as in, you know, I purposely don't say fantastic, just that, I just trust it's all, it's all good. And that's just me personally, because I think I've, I have that fear of things not being all right. So Mm -hmm. I think it's just this trust of just, it's all good. Just let it go. Um, Other people may have different things they trust in, but that's what, that's what comes to me. Mm. Scott, what do you trust? What do you ultimately trust in those moments? If there is an ultimate and absolute, which that for those that are tuning in, that was the previous one and a half hour conversation. <laughs> I simply trust that who, what I am in this world, where this world is taking me, or what this world needs. Mm. Yeah. I can see that. You know, yeah. I will say, <clears throat> perhaps gilding a lily, I don't need to be gilding. I view myself as merely a vessel. Mm-hmm. I have come to embrace that, love it, be so grateful for it. And once I began to understand that, then me being what the universe wants me to be or has me here for right is the most beautiful empowering thing in the world yeah and that's why trust comes easier that's a sense of purpose too and it's funny how you find your purpose by just kind of letting go right like you're just yes. a vessel and and i think what's beautiful about that scott is it's not i i i 
I am here. I am doing this. I am doing that. It's, it's this, um, it's coming through you. Exactly. I think where you were the eye was when you snapped at the guy to get out of your chair. And I think at that moment you realized, wait a minute, I'm, I'm off. Um, yeah. So the only question I have in regard to that, and if this is a um, can of worms that I'm opening, please let me know. Cause we, you know, <laughs> and it could quit. It, could it surely quit. must be. <laughs> Otherwise you wouldn't say that. <laughs> but but let, let's look at it this way. So in regard to what you just described, Scott, if you are simply a vessel or a vehicle or a channel for the energy or whatever the source is to experience life through, then why is it, why is that not enough when it comes to having a sense of purpose? Why is identifying and articulating that purpose in the language that we speak such a large component of many of our lives? Perhaps because we <laughs> our favorite word, <laughs> every human being in existence ever. I will say that perhaps it can be because some of us are attempting to define things within the limitation of our own lenses and don't necessarily or are not in a place or, or just flatly disagree with the idea that the scale of the matrix is, as Casey has said repeatedly today that we're operating in is beyond the scope of our tiny minds. Yeah. And doesn't to- take into fully account to take into full account our own tininess. Indeed. I'm also wondering like if maybe partially not, um, Maybe that goes back to, I don't know, insecurity, not knowing, yeah, you know, and not, not, not wanting to say that I don't know what my ultimate purpose is. Going back to the it's idea that is acceptable. Yeah, I mean, certain things, and know? also right, and the idea of um, what we're willing to admit being on a spectrum, as mm-hmm. well as the extent to which mastery of the ego or uncontrolled dominance of the ego can exist within a, spe- within a spectrum. Uh, it is perhaps more than one's ego can bear, or at least some people's ego to bear to say exactly what you're saying. Mm-hmm. They have to have that level of control. And perhaps they're not in a place where they can see that there is a different um, location on the sliding scale that they can go to. Mm-hmm. Maybe you know, they never a, will. There's a story my friend told me that the gods said we have the secret to life, um, but we want to hide it, and we don't want humans to find it, or we want them to. We do want them to find it, but we don't want to give it away too easily. And they said, "Well, where should we hide it? Well, let's put it under the under the big seas at the bottom." And they said, "No, no, you know what? They'll create these submarines and they'll go down and find it. So hmm. well, let's put it up in the skies, way up high." They went, "No, no, no. They'll create these ships and they'll find it." So they, they thought about it, they thought about it, and then they finally said they found exactly where to hide the meaning of life, and that is within humans. 
because they said they'll never look there. <laughs> so then that begs the question of why would they never look there? And if you look at kind of historically and archaeologically and a lot of just suppositions by historians, you know, the idea that once humans were able to, and homo sapiens, homo homo sapiens were able to gain language beyond just what other primates were able to do. You know, a monkey can squawk and say, there's a tiger down there, but the monkey doesn't, it doesn't necessarily say, and let's all get three of us and let's round here and then have a plan and I'll put together a PowerPoint <laughs> and we'll have a, right there, the, that level of planning, right? Besides maybe a monkey with the, the grass and tools and getting the ants. So there really isn't that level of planning. That's why we humans are where we're at because we have these words and these concepts that we can put together where even though we're smaller and there's less of us, we understand and can get a culture and a tribe together to ambush all of those gazelles inside a valley and then take these spears with metal things we created and kill them and have food and a feast, right? So other animals can't do that. And so what that did also is it created identity. Mm. And we created identity. The agriculture revolution happened 10,000 years ago and it didn't happen overnight, but all of a sudden now we're owning land and now we're, there are Kings and now there's Jacob's, you know, Joseph's story with the, in the Bible, with the, the Pharaoh, seven lean years, seven great years. So all of this has come out. And so I, I did that little history lesson to kind of pick up on, on what Scott was saying is that some of this is our ego and that we can't accept these other opinions. Part of it also is that we, there's a consciousness that goes back thousands of years that we live in. And it's to your point, really around insecurity, Oleg. Uh -huh. We were not meant to be the top of the food chain. We jumped to the top of the food chain. Think about it. We're the top of the food chain over lions and tigers and, and woolly mammoths. We did it because of our intellect and our big brain, which, which many don't have. And so, but we jumped to the top <laughs> of the food chain. Many who? Many, right. Go ahead. But we're so insecure about it. <laughs> We're so insecure about it. We eradicate all other predators. We fence off land. There literally is, we are such insecure beings. And so I think that insecurity really informs, you know, a lot of what we do and the ability of us not be able to accept certain things like just letting go and letting other animals graze on our land and not fencing off land and not needing to kill everyone off. There is so much abundance in this world that all of the other animals have lived by. All the other trees have lived by. We come in in the last 10,000, 50,000 years and change it um, and uh, because we think that, that we lack. And so I just want to throw that out, that there is a, a consciousness element. And I think we're we're changing that. I mean, things are changing. It's going to take maybe another 10,000 years, but things will change, hopefully, where we don't look at it with such lack consciousness. Oleg, you've got to have some sort of last word. I'm, I'm just sitting here and, and processing this last three and a half hours that we spent together. Um, I, I mean, no. I, I'm not even going to say that I have the last word that summarizes this last three and a half hours. That wouldn't do it justice. But I, I will say that I think if anything, what I'm choosing to leave with is an expanded perspective as it relates to the topic of gratitude, resilience, but also pers just perspective in general and the importance of having a perspective and finding ways to develop a perspective where 
um, resistance might be a thing and not wanting to accept it as a possible truth according to someone else's lens and reality, that is a actionable takeaway that I'm walking away with. Yeah. And, and also just the ability to listen. Uh, I think the ability to listen and Casey, you, you said this, um, couple times when you were sharing that I found to be uh, profound for a couple reasons. First one is you were mentioning this, uh, you said something along the lines of like, you know, I, I don't have, I don't want to put words into your mouth. So I'm paraphrasing here, but you said something like, I don't have anything uh, like profound to, to add or say. And I think that's the beauty sometimes for me is understanding that not everything has to be this polished gold and, and all this other stuff. And the reason why I bring that up is because this morning prior to this event taking place, I was actually thinking about something slightly unrelated. Maybe we can tie it to this theme. And that's this concept of having quote unquote negative publicity around you as an individual. And it really got me thinking in this particular way. It's like for many years, I believe that the negative publicity is just, you know, worst thing in the world. Like, A, why would someone want to put something out there? And B, like, why would I ever want to read something like that? Well, here's the conclusion I came up with. It made me think that there's actually value in having things like that, especially the ones that have truth to those statements, because it makes the other individual human. It makes me understand that no one is, quote unquote, perfect. Everyone F's up. Everyone makes mistakes. You know, if there were things, if there were perspectives shared about the mistakes I've made in my life, mm -hmm. it's fine because that makes me human. Now, obviously, there's a there's a key ingredient here is whether or not those things are true and actually happened, or if they're fabrications. But mm -hmm. you know, that's a that's a topic for a different conversation. But it just it made me think and tie back to this conversation. <laughs> Everything that I've shared, I can only speak from my perspective, even in situations where I felt that I didn't know a certain thing or just simply hear as a thought exercise and listening to myself process through certain things. I think that in a way, it's like, that's what life is about. You know, it's, it's not about walking, walking around with that treasure chest every day, right. but it's also sometimes walking with that shovel and looking for that treasure chest. Mm -hmm. It's also about not knowing what the shallow enemy even looks like or what you're going to use to dig for that treasure chest. And that's and my that is what we created. And I just, I just want to applaud us for that. Like we created the vehicle yeah. for complete and utter exploration in situations where maybe all three of us didn't know anything about the topic in hand, but yet we had the courage to ask a series of questions which then led to a series of truths according to our own lens and perspective. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's the 11.57 a.m. on a Tuesday trying to get aligned, right? No one's around. It's a normal Tuesday. It's not glamorous. It's not profound. How am I going to act in this moment? Um, mm -hmm. And I got a shovel and it's dirty and all of that. And for me, that's the most important time. That's, I think, what I strive to be resilient for is are those moments particularly when i'm on my own or i'm just in my own head and um there's just nothing glamorous about it i don't there there's no money coming at 11:58 there's no there there there's no goal there's no nothing and it's just okay what's the choice i'm going to make right now so i like that shovel idea
Mm-hmm. How do people connect with the two of you? In case I'll start with you, what's yeah. the best way? And for those that are watching, I'm going to put leave law behind there, but I know that you're developing some other things. Yeah. Can- find, find me at leave law behind. Thanks. So like find me at leave law Again, that's leave law behind.com. Uh, I'm a former attorney um, like Scott and I've, I've created a full on uh, coaching practice to help um, attorneys career transition out of the law. You can find me there. Uh, find me on LinkedIn, um, Casey Berman. Uh, if you're connected with Oleg and Scott, you can find me. And then I'm also, launching caseyberman.com, uh, my first name, last name.com, where I am uh, taking what I do to help attorneys and helping many other people leave the careers they don't like for ones they do, and also just to help them live um, kind of a more high performance aligned life. So um, would yeah. love to chat. Scott Mason, how do people connect with you? So as you have put in the scrolling bar beneath the screen, I have a highway, uh, I'm sorry, a podcast, a highway, a podcast, whatever. They're all the same thing. (laughs) Scott Mason's Purpose Highway Podcast. It is a place where people come to discuss connection to their higher purpose so they can build a better self and a better world. The stories contained in that podcast are amazing. We'll touch you, inspire you, and help you move towards your own higher purpose to build a better self and a better world. You can also find out more about me as a speaker. I love to speak at at, um, virtual or live events on subjects like connecting to your higher purpose, resilience, the things we talked about today. Speakerscott.com. On Thursday nights, by the way, Mm -hmm. Oleg, you and I have another podcast. It is on LinkedIn and Facebook Live called Just a Squirrel Looking for a Nut. You can find me on LinkedIn at smason1. And then you can also find me on Instagram, Scott s.scott underscore Mason. I am more than happy to connect with anyone and really am grateful for every single person who took the time to watch or listen today or in any of the playbacks. Mm. I can't think of any other place that people can't connect with you, Scott. I think we've listed every possible possibility, but I, I'm glad that we were able to do this. Uh, I'm glad that people were able to tune in to this event, Melody, Kenneth, Gabe, and so many others. Uh, like I said earlier, I think it's us that choose to put out the intention and create the space, but it's all of you that really come together and make these things possible due to your perspectives and everything that you share. And so just with that said, I want to thank all the people that were able to be a part of it. Um, I want to thank all the people that choose to support and contribute the mission behind much of this, because once again, without people like that, none of this would be possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And so I just want to applaud every single person that's been a part of it and also encourage everyone to connect with the two of you. Scott and Casey. And outside of that, I'm just grateful. I'm grateful that we're able to create the space and I look forward to creating the space again next Sunday on the 28th. Yeah, exactly. Thanks for having me. It was an honor to be here and I've, I've learned so much. So me too. Yeah, this was great. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. If you haven't done so already, consider subscribing to our future episodes so you can receive all of the latest content. 
Also, if you like what you heard, consider supporting our cause by making a donation through our website at overcomingodds.today so we can continue creating and sharing these courageous and inspiring conversations. Once again, we thank you for listening and we'll look forward to having you next time. Thank you.